It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's up, everybody? Welcome to our final special of the year. This is the best of the What's Real podcast, season four, uh, where we're kind of going to go through our different categories that we have here and play some of our best stuff from the year that we believe at least is the best stuff. And uh, it's been another interesting year for us here on the podcast, Jay. We've done some fun stuff as we move into season five in the year 2024. Uh, hope everybody out there is having a nice holiday season, uh, getting ready for New Year's and all that fun stuff. Uh, so, uh, you know, what do you think, the Jay? It's been a pretty fun year. Oh, I had a blast, man. I, I always say that the What's Real podcast is a journey into our world, and this is year four in the books, man. It's crazy. When we start our official episode count for season five, we'll be in 2024 with a fresh new episode 190, hitting the 190s, closing in on the big two Hondo hand. I remember we had a big celebration for the, the big 100 episode, the big Hondo. And just like that, we're doubling that 200 official episode counts of the What's Roll podcast right around the corner. It, it's been a crazy ride, but it's it's always fun. And that's why we're still doing this. Uh, we always said we're, we're not going to stop in, until the, the fun stops. And so far, we're still having fun. So always a good time to escape into our world, as, as I always call it, the Steve McQueen in it. And, and off the bat, we have some fun action. You know, we're starting off with a literal bang. Hey, Ed, if you want to pick up what I'm putting down. Absolutely. And you guys might not realize it, but we are coming from the What's Real Bunker this week uh, because Nuck is out for the holidays. Uh, the budget for season four is completely gone here. So we we can't really do much. We are naked. And we had to, and we had to protect ourselves here. You know what I'm saying? Like we have this bunker. We, we only really use it like once a year. Uh, so we like to come down here, especially when uh, we're without reinforcements and we weren't going to take any chances because we wanted to make it uh, to season five. And if you guys are listening to the show, you know what that means. So uh, what that means is we're trying to be safe here because usually when it comes to the most action-packed segment weekly podcasting, Thursday Night Prime here on the show, it can be kind of dangerous. And we've dealt with all kinds of adversity and attacks from a, a whole myriad of stuff, honestly. I mean, we could do a whole show on all the things that have attacked us prior to that. I don't even know how the fuck we're alive, to be honest with you, Jay. Uh, it's like a miracle. My body tells a story just from Thursday Night Prime with the scars I have. Hey, Ed, I always talk about how it drives my wife crazy when the, the segment is uh, prominent, you know, because we, we kind of do it sporadically. You know, we'll give it a month long run nowadays here and there. And it's definitely going to return in in 2024 and season five of the Whisperful podcast so right now we gotta kind of lick our wounds and like you said it's it's kind of re uh issuing the budget seeing where we're at in the next season with what we have to work with we had that big war council meeting with knock and his whole team and everything else that comes with this and for those listening freshly that don't know uh knock who we're referencing is our our general here at the what's real studios that assists us in varying things but his prime uh, focus and his prime role is to assist us in surviving Thursday night prime when we do it on the show. And this best of is going to be no different. And he he's, he's a, a veteran of several wars. He's also a mercenary around the world. And that's when he's not busy with the what's real podcast. And he's currently off. God knows where uh, last I talked to him, he was off in the West Indies doing weird shit. Uh, he was, he was riding fucking giraffes around like all kinds of weird shit, but uh, we'll have to find out exactly what he was doing whenever he gets back 
uh, here at the What's Real Studios uh, come the new year and everything. Uh, but that means it is time, guys. Uh, this is officially the best of Thursday Night Prime for season four of the What's Real podcast. Steve Armstrong, there's something you don't know about me, Shorty. I ever fight. Uh, I fought on a human circuit. I was ranked. I won a lot of fights. Yeah. Hey, take it easy! Hey, you know, I heard about you, but I find it very difficult to believe. I mean, an earthling who can fight. And we're back. We're back in 1989 with Peter Manugian. Uh, Manuge. Re- yeah, the Manuge. Uh, we're talking arena. An intergalactic fighting competition between champions of various worlds has traditionally been won by a species much larger and stronger than humans. Entering the contest, a human finds he has to battle against not just his opponents and his self-doubts, but the corrupt system. Far in the future, on a distant space station, the legendary arena is where the best fighters from every planet come to vie for the championship. But for over half a century, no Earthling has been good enough to be a contender. Until out of nowhere comes an underdog, the great human hope, Steve Armstrong, (laughs) and the best anyone's ever seen. He's been training all his life for a shot at the big time, but now he's up against some mighty big muscle. A ruthless extraterrestrial crime lord who'll pull no punches to make sure he stops Steve dead. In the mood for hard-hitting sci-fi action, Arena will knock you out. By far (laughs) the longest synopsis I've ever read for anything. Um... Very weird movie, by the way. It, st- it stars Paul Satterfield as Steve Armstrong and a bunch of B-type players. Uh, dude, William Butler's in this, which I forgot about. Yeah. Uh, he plays Skull. Um, basically, this movie is fucking really stupid, except for when it comes to the creatures and shit. That stuff's really great. But, dude, one thing I mentioned to you off the air, and I, I, I was like, don't look this up. So I was looking at the cast and crew on this. So listen to how wild this shit is. It's produced by Charles Band, which isn't super surprising. Like, I'm pretty sure that's believable. Also produced by Erwin Yablons, who's one of the producers behind the Halloween films. Right. Um, Mac Alberg was the cinematographer. Does that ring a bell to you at all? No. This dude was the cinematographer on stuff like Reanimator, From Beyond, Good Burger, House, Beverly Hills Cop 3, Dolls, The Brady Bunch Movie, Ghoulies, Hell Knight, Trancers, House 2, Innocent Blood, Deep Star 6, A Very Brady Sequel, Striking Distance, Robot Jocks, Stallone's Oscar, uh, Evil Bong, House 3, Prison, Puppet Master Movies. That's a resume, boy. And, yes, because I got to bring this up, too. He was also the director of a 1977 movie titled Molly. It's a porno. So <laughs> uh, he's done a lot of shit. So that's kind of wild. And this isn't really surprising either. Uh, visual effects in this movie, John Carl Buchler, who's known for directing Trolls and Friday 13th Part 7. He's also known as a special effects wizard. And because this is uh, anytime you see a movie that's done produced by Charles Band, you're going to see composer Richard Band. So you have some pretty good cast and crew on this one. Um, But the thing is, this is a movie that we had completely wanted to cover uh, since we started doing Thursday Night Prime. And it had been a long time since either one of us had seen this in any capacity. And dude, I remember loving this movie and re-watching it. I don't know what the fuck was wrong with me, 
Um, but I remembered it's a 94 minute movie and it's basically like the first hour is pretty bad. The last half hour is fun. Like, but it's, it's such a weird fucking movie all around. Like the way that they, you know, it's really more about like these fucked up shitty people that run the fights than it really is the, the creatures and the other shit. So it's really weird when the creatures show up in the movie, a lot of time, they're not even like the focal point. So it's like, dude, there's a lot of creature work that went into this movie. And like, you guys are, you're just showing like people in futuristic clothing that looks outdated now. Yeah. I think it's one of those situations where they were just too far reaching for the concept in comparison to what they had for a budget. And that's not to say that they didn't have a budget. Cause like you said, listening, all the people involved, looking at the, the creature effects and everything that's there, but Again, a concept like this, that's that's why Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and all that shit costs hundreds of millions of dollars and it only gets greenlit at the points in time where technology catches up to for them to do it appropriately to make the money back. You know what I mean? Like this this concept's yeah. really good. Like you put this on paper, like we always talk about our disdain for remakes, but this is one if you get the right budget, a remake would be cool possibly, you know, and focus more, like you said, kind of twist the plot up a bit better and things like that. Uh, looking back on it, the big question that we had last week, bringing it up that we were going to cover this on Thursday night prime was I had mentioned to you, Hey Ed, and I know you agreed that we were really curious for both of us to see how it held up. I think yeah. I, I think I was a little more fond of it than, than you were from the sound of your reaction. Cause I know you were saying that, going on to the show that uh, you liked the end, but that was pretty much it. Um, well, it's, it's, it's fun. It's like, super it's, cheesy. It, like you have well, to dude, say that right away. It's very cheesy. Of course. But the thing that this is the real selling point in this movie. And this is why, like I said that earlier, kind of joking around, like what the fuck was I thinking? But like, I completely understand why I liked this when I was younger. It's a charming movie. It's not good, but it does have charm to it. The, the creatures are cool. Like, it has all the shit that would have worked for me when I was younger, for sure. But now when I'm watching it and I'm like, I'm not expecting Shakespeare here, but I'm like, some of the shit's really bad and plotting. That's that's what I didn't remember about it. Yeah. Like, it doesn't move the way. It, the pacing's lousy in it. I would agree with that. And, and again, I think they had a lot of really good ideas, but just not the ability to really pull it off appropriately is what happens. Yeah, and I mean, not just that too, but I mean, this movie was probably made in 1988. Um, yeah, that's what it said on IMDb. It was made and, in 88, didn't come out till 89. But dude, this is, if you remember, if you could put yourself back in that like time period, right? When you see something like this sight unseen, you're like, okay, this is either Empire Pictures, which is Charles Band's theatrical, uh, like Cor- uh, Corman's uh, Concord Films. Or, or maybe Canon. became... Or new, yep, canon, or it's just straight from Italy. Like that's where they were doing this kind of stuff at the time. Um, so like I remember, like I even said to you, I felt like they tried when they made this, they were like trying to be like, well, they just put Masters of the Universe in theaters, which was a canon movie, and we talked about it not too long ago on the show. Um, stuff like this was they would pull the wool over the eyes with a lot of stuff at the time. Like you would get movies that looked like big budget sci-fi pictures. And then it's basically just a B movie, but they didn't want you to know that going into it. You know what I mean? We didn't have the internet back then. I mean, so. It's almost what Star Wars initially was in a lot of ways. Yes. 
it's absolutely it's it's a genre piece so they know they're going to get x amount of dollars from that um it'll play to certain audiences and things and you know i'm sure it did you know somewhat well this is a movie that we both remember vividly from being on hbo um it was on thursday night prime but it also played at all times because it wasn't r-rated so they could get away with with doing a lot of stuff like that and also i think too it's kind of surprising that it wasn't R-rated, but I guess that kind of leans further into my point of like they're trying to make it play to way more audiences than like, dude, I mean, if you told me this really like, oh man, you ever see this movie Arena? Like John Carl Buechler does the effects and it's about like this fighting competition between like humans and aliens. I'd immediately think like, oh fuck, well, this is gonna be like gory. A lot of gore. And fucking yeah. nuts. And and it's, they're they're trying to be way more family friendly with it. I don't really think there's a lot of stuff in this movie. Like, just thinking off the top of your head, obviously you don't recall every minute of this, but like, is this something that like you wouldn't let your kids watch? Oh no, my kids they they've watched way worse stuff than this. Yeah, so it's like, and dude, this is something that like even as a kid, like my parents wouldn't give a shit if I would. Yeah, watch it's this. it's, it's like, the usual thing with with their age is is um. You know, I mean, obviously not ridiculous gore and, and things like that, but like they could take the violence. I mean, the swearing is like no big deal um, at this juncture. Uh, but the big thing is, of course, sex, just because they're still younger kids and they, there is the sex scene and the nice ass of the young lady. So, yeah, I guess that's about the only that's part. about the only thing. Yeah, because PG-13, you could still show butt crack because it's just a quick yeah. butt crack scene. But that, that's the thing, too. There's a lot of like cool characters, albeit many are pretty cheesy. But you have the relationship between Steve and Shorty. Shorty's like the four armed alien that gets in all kinds of hijinks. Uh, but they're like best friends. And Dude. Then, I, I did uh, get a laugh at the, uh, like, you know, when they, they're in that fucking scene and it's like, I guess it's like their generic version of the cantina and Star Wars. Yeah, so right. You see, the, you see the four-armed creature doing the three-card Monty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, got a, I thought that was hilarious. And, was and, and, and like going with that, they had the space comic. And and he goes yes. off the stage. He says, I, oh, I could stay all night, folks, but I got to go. A hand for the boys in the band. And remember, I hate your guts. And then he just rolls. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fun movie. It's, it definitely held up, you know, kind of pretty much as I expected, I would say, you know, like I didn't think it was going to blow me away. And I think I tempered my expectations for it. Dude, do you know who did the actual effects for this? No. Have you ever heard of Screaming Mad George before? No. Okay. So Screaming Mad George is an old school fucking effects artist okay and he's a japanese artist first off too he does really cool shit um and it's like i'm trying to think of like off the top of my head some of the shit that he's done that you would recognize well he did beyond reanimator um he did a lot of effects in uh, nightmare on elm street 4 um he did the stuff in uh, american werewolf in paris okay yeah um, I'm trying to think what else he was. Oh, God damn it. He worked on Predator. I know that because he was. So he, he did some like shit. A, well, he'd be a dude that like, um, say like they get a major effects artist, right? Like, you know, like Stan Winston gets brought in to do something. And it's like, okay, well, I'm going to bring in Screaming Mad George to do this creature or that because he. Uh, I got you. He, he he worked in the art department. He was a sculptor on the Abyss. 
Um, he did visual effects for Poltergeist 2, Big Trouble in Little China, um, Silent Night, Deadly Night 5. He did makeup. He was in the makeup department for Spaceballs, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, 4, uh, Society, which is a movie we covered here on uh, the show for Joe Bob. Um, this is the one that he's most well-known to me for, and it's an oddball flick, and it's a cool one. It's from 1993 with Alex Winters, and it's called Freaked. Oh, yeah, of course. I love Freaked. So, like, that's, like, if you remember Freaked and you watch Arena, right, you can tell the kind of stuff that he did in Arena. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, the weird faces and, like, mm-hmm. like that comedian dude he probably did. Yeah. Like, just, like, weird, funky space character. Weasel. You know Weasel's I mean? a good character. Yep. And Skull. Absolutely. Yep. 100%. Um trying to think what else uh i know he did some shit for brighter reanimator um fuck there's an oh dude this is a great one you remember the movie the stoned age oh yeah remember whenever dude's telling the story of when he went to the blue blue oyster cult thing and he's like and the fucking eye just caught me and they show like the weird eye in the sky yeah screaming at matt george is the dude who made that that's pretty cool so like he's all he doesn't do like regular like you know like the Savini effects where like somebody gets cut with a sword or something. He's like creatures and mechanical shit. Like a dude that was born out of like Fangoria magazine in the eighties, kind of. Um, and he's a unique artist, so like his stuff's always kind of cool. Um, and it's kind of crazy to think that this dude worked on fucking Predator. Yeah, and then like a year later he's working on Arena. Like he's not pretentious. He'll do like anything that he thinks is kind of cool. So it's it's really not a mystery between him and John Carl Butler why like the creatures and shit in this are amazing. Did you know who uh, cracked me up a lot too though that you wouldn't maybe think? I don't know, hmm. you know, if I even noticed it as a kid, I might have even been kind of like somewhat scared of him. Fucking Horn, you know. For those that don't know, oh, yeah. Horn's the the alien champion, and dude, he's hilarious because he's always just like. I'm Horn. I'm the champion, you know, and just always talking shit on Armstrong. <laughs> he was just funny. Dude, it's, it was just hilarious. I forget the damn thing's uh, name, but like this was my fa- my favorite character is the fucking um, the dude that he's always like sparring with to get like to train. Yeah, yeah, and he's like he's he's good. That kid's good. Like there's some funny shit. Like yeah, they he was funny. Fight. They have a. He's fight just trying to go something. eat, and it's like. He's like, hey, man, pretty good fight. He's like, yeah, you too. <laughs> yeah, he's like, that like, kid's not bad. And like, it's He's like the trainer, like the monster <laughs> yeah. trainer. Like, I, I love that. Yeah, character. again, there's it's a lot great. of good ideas and concepts in this. It, it's just, you know, for the time and, and budget and constraints, it, it gets a bit cheesy. That's what's tough about something on this scale. But, you know, none, nonetheless, I was I was definitely happy it, it popped back on Tubi because uh, we mentioned last week, and, and like you were saying, that's why we haven't seen it in some time. It's just one of those rare ones that just never had a DVD release, never came out on Blu-ray, never popped up on Netflix oh, in all these years. I guarantee you, it had some sort of a release. I don't know. You know me. I looked. I looked for it. Maybe it's, I missed it. I could have. Well, here are you going to fullmoonpictures.com and looking for it because no. they that that's where you could probably get it. Like it's you know, band has a stranglehold on all his shit, whether he yeah, owns it or not, frankly. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, dude, it's a cool flick, it's interesting. But dude, the one big takeaway for me from this one, and it made me sad actually, like pretty like bummed me the fuck out. 
I miss the fact that they like they don't make shit like this anymore. Yeah. Like in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a ton of shit like this, good and bad and otherwise. But like, I just miss this era of like being able to have these weird fucking creature flicks. Like, they were just cool. Like, and they don't make shit like this. It like went the way of the Western. Yeah. Uh, again, because it's a tough undertaking. Like, these things aren't easy to make. E- even coming out is, is pretty cheesy overall. But again, that's what all goes into it. But I'm, I'm with you. You know, definitely miss little gems like that. And every once in a while, things pop up, you know, with independent movies and stuff. But yeah, like you said, it's not prominent whatsoever. And uh, I love this too. Hit us with the tagline that when you watch the movie, it absolutely makes sense. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, there's there's kind of a couple because that's the thing too. That that would have got me as a kid from the, the, the door. Hey, Ed is the poster. is really cool. It's, it's made to look like yep. almost a pro wrestling thing. It has all the, the, cre- the main creatures on it and stuff. Uh, but yep, yeah. I'm 100%. I love the fucking poster. I would buy this poster. Yeah, the poster's cool. But uh, it says, tonight, championship grudge match, man versus monster. And then the main tagline, for a thousand years, no human has been the champion. He wants to be the first. You know, minus the, the one that was that yeah, beats, a thousand and one years ago. There was the champion. Yeah, it, yeah I'm pretty <laughs> sure the guy's not that old. He was like, you haven't won. He's like, he's yeah, the last like champion that's in the film. Yeah. Yeah. Like the hobo. He kind of looked like uh, Scott Glenn or uh, Lance Henriksen a little bit. Yeah, Lance Glenn Rickson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh but yeah as we do here on the show five star rating scale the jay what do you got for arena i'm going three and a half with arena for my love of it my nostalgia oh, i'm giving three yeah so it's 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 enjoyable it's not great but like it is worth a look and like like we were talking about you could watch it on tubi for free definitely check it out if you get it both of the movies we reviewed this week for thursday night prime are available on tubi for nothing so and they're uncut just some ads they're not a big deal. And trust me, we both hate that shit. Uh, so it, it's pretty impressive overall. But but that is it for our special installment, the double dose of Thursday Night Prime. We're up against our very final commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to wrap up the show. We're going to talk some goofs. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. It's time for Thursday Night Prime. And we're back. Jay, the Jay, did you hit that dude? Yep. I saw you grab the sniper. I was yeah, I, There was a dude with ooh. four wolves running up the side of the compound. I took him out with the sniper rifle. And then uh, Nux had some guys down on the lower level that took care of the, the wolves. And okay. we don't condone animal death. So we're going to do what we can to kind of, you know, train their brains to be our pets. So we'll see how that works. They're starting the process already. Yeah, Nux bows the sur- compound hail. Nux an idiot, but surprisingly, he talks to animals like Doctor Doolittle. So it's it's interesting. Yeah, right? tell, it that's works out. that's the the best way. I mean, but you know he's gonna have a bunch of fucking wolves living downstairs with him now. That's just gonna be weird. But yeah, we're gonna be like the Starks from Game of Thrones. <laughs> but it is what it is. But anyway, it is time for some Thursday Night Prime. This week we go back to 1993. Making his North American debut as director John Wu, we're talking hard target. When a woman's father goes missing, she enlists a local to aid in her search. The pair soon discover that her father has died at the hands of a wealthy sportsman who hunts homeless men as a form of recreation. Oddly enough, which is like a uh, 
a subgenre unto itself in the early 90s of the hunting homeless men for sport movies. Yeah, in competition with Ice-T and surviving the game. Exactly. You got it. But this one stars Jean-Claude Van Damme as Chance Bordreau. Uh, it also features Lance Henriksen, Yancey Butler, who was in a ton of shit in the 90s, and she's fucking terrible. Um, Wilford Brimley shows up in this one. Of course, Ted Raimi is in it real quick, um, which he tends to do in almost everything. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I will say this. It's been a long time since I watched this. I couldn't even tell you the last time that I seen this movie. Um, I was kind of excited to rewatch it again. I remember liking it. And obviously, John Woo uh, is somebody that I enjoy, too. Um, but I got to say, man, I was a little disappointed in this one. And I'll tell you why. Uh, the action sequences in this one are pretty good. Like, he knows what he's doing, shooting it and everything. No complaints there as far as John Woo goes. You know, as far as an action movie goes, it's going to be at least entertaining in that regard. Um, but in this one, man, uh, oddly enough, it feels like Van Damme's kind of phoning it in through the whole movie. Uh, Yancey Butler's a complete waste in this one, unless she's, like, crying or scared of something. That's literally pretty much all she's doing. Wilford Brimley has the worst Creole accent you'll ever hear. Um, and the story is paper thin, which is something that I was kind of surprised by. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like why Lance Henriksen and his crew are hunting homeless people other than just they're bad people who want to do stuff. Um, Yancey Butler's father was obviously killed by them. Uh, and for no reason other than he just wants some money He's Jean-Claude Van Damme's helping her. Um, now, with all the paper-thin shit to be said, there's still a ton of action here. It's 97 minutes. Probably would have benefited by being a little bit shorter, I thought. But, you know, it is what it is. It's a bunch of stylish action uh, in the way that John Woo does. A lot of it's kind of funny, frankly, like the scene with uh, Van Damme on top of the bike, which yeah. he's, like, flipping over a van and, like, <laughs> like doing all kinds of goofy shit, but you kind of know what you're getting into this one. So like, even though it was a little disappointed on the story and the things, it still holds up as a, a fun little action movie. I think this too, hey, is Van Damme's only starring role performance with the long hair. Would you call that a mullet? Oh, I would. Yeah, it's mullet. He's mulleted up in this as Boudreaux, which is funny, uh, but he's ripped up in this too. This is like the prime of Van Damme, you know, physically and stuff uh, d during his prime run. Uh, so that all goes into it. But I'm, I'm with you. You know, the story was, it was definitely goofy. They could have definitely maybe done that a bit better. There were some slow moments, actually, which I didn't remember. But overall, the pacing was good. Because like you said, I mean, the action sequences, John Woo's first North American film and, and everything uh, that you would expect uh, from this time period. But we always shout out the stunts on TNP, and there were some great ones, albeit very over the top, like you were alluding to with him, like jumping on – the you know both feet on the motorcycle seat and doing flips and all kinds of craziness that, that we can get into some highlights that I have listed, but but here at the beginning of the breakdown, I definitely wanted to shout out somebody that that we love to to shout out his character, and that's of course Lance Hendrickson's Emil Fushan's right hand man pick is Arnold Vuslu, aka Emo Tap, one of your favorites. Hey you. Yes, of course. Uh, dude, it's kind of weird too because Lance Henriksen feels kind of wasted in this one. Um, that's yeah, one thing. He's all right. It's well, dude. Here's the thing. It, especially at this point, like Van Damme's movies were always kind of like to set up like an epic fight at the end, and it's Lance Henriksen. Yeah, like it's good not, point. it's 
you know, who's a great actor. It's just for something like this, he's you don't need a great actor. You just need some hulking dude who's an asshole. And that's not Lance Henriksen. Um, he's not bad by any stretch of the means. It just seems kind of like a weird choice for the character. Um, but, you know, and, and dude, it's weird, too, because like. He, like Van Damme gets involved because of Yancey Butler's character's dad. Um, and then it just kind of like deviates away from that a little bit. Like it's not really important. Um, I don't care, but it's just kind of a lot of like weird choices. And I think too, that in watching this, it's kind of glaring to me. John Woo knew how to make a fucking action movie, but John Woo didn't understand how to make movies for Western audiences at all. And that's definitely apparent here. So it's like there's some flubs and things. And there was always rumors that there were like a troubled production with this. And John Woo wasn't necessarily involved in all the editing process of everything in this too. So it's kind of like somebody takes his work and they don't really know what they're doing with it. And there's something off about that because just by comparison, if you've ever seen Hard Boiled, which is John Woo's like, like that movie kicks the shit out of this. It's not even close. Because he knew the kind of movie that he wanted to make and he had the freedom to do it where, you know, his debut in America here, uh, they're like somebody's going to fiddle with it. You yeah, know what I was going to say? As we know, the execs probably had their fingerprints all over this. Absolutely. Because I, I was reading there was like a, uh, a much longer cut, uh, yep. a 128 minute work print. Yep. And it does exist. Uh, so that kind of gives you the tell as you're alluding to, hey, Ed, that, you know, they had their hands all over those producers and stuff, probably fiddling with Wu. And, dude, one thing that I wanted to mention in this that is a really a mark of, of how good of a director John Woo is when it comes to action movies. So, you know, like whenever it comes to like a lot of the stuff we watch here on, on Thursday Night Prime, you'll see an actor get into a situation where the stunt's necessary. And like it's so blatantly obvious that it's not them. Woo covers his shots well. Like he won't show the face. He'll zoom away. He'll do certain things to take your attention away from that, which is something that I think a lot of action direct. I mean, it doesn't matter anymore because people aren't really making action like that. And when they do, they do it with CGI, but uh, there would have been a lot of directors back in the nineties. And even before that, that would have totally benefited uh, from the way that John Woo shoots his movies. And I don't mean with like the slow motion, big action stuff, just some of the little tidbits that he, he did that make his movies that much better. That brings up probably the thing that I enjoyed the most about this film was the old school way of shooting an action movie and especially yep. with John Woo at the helm. I mean, there were some really cool spots, if you will, us with our professional wrestling rhetoric all the time. But there was the one time towards the end where Van Damme's in this kind of, you know, basically like this large shed kind of thing. And he gets caught by this guy that's on this motorcycle that's about to shoot him. Yep. And Van Damme kicks he starts spilling a gasoline container, kicks it at the dude, pulls out a shotgun, and then shoots the canister right in the dude's face. And the motorcycle goes flying out of the window with an explosion. And that's yep. when Henrik Henriksen and them are rolling up. So they're like, what the fuck? So that dude, was really good. But yeah, that, that stuff really helped the, the, the watch. And I like John Woo for the fact that he could do like crazy epic shit. Like even that scene on the bridge where like he's flipping over the truck. That's awesome. And then he blows yeah. the truck up and shit. Like he could do it like on a big level like that. But if you remember the scene at the very beginning of the movie where Van Damme first gets introduced to the Yancey Butler character and she's getting mugged. It's like it's just a simple fight scene where he beats up like four or five guys. 
but it's fucking awesome. Yeah, that was really like, good. He breaks the dude's arm. The one dude, he like kicks him in the back of the head and he goes through the fucking window the and slow him window, up. Yeah. yeah, like dude, that shit is great. And that's like a much lower level action scene. But the thing is, is like the way he shoots it, like even the part where he like hits the dude and he goes head first into like the parking meter and shit. Like he can shoot it on a big epic scale or he could shoot it on a small scale where there's more simple shit going on. But the way that he shoots it, it's like one is not more important than the other. He shoots them to be exciting and interesting and gets cool angles and shows you as the audience like a lot of different looks at it. And I think that's refreshing because I think like even the a lot of directors will like do the small one and just be like, okay, just blah, 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 blah. And then they on. take... Then they shoot the fucking big bridge scene for two weeks. You know what I mean? Right. Where it's like they're all action is equally important because it's taking up time on the screen whenever they're showing it to you. So, and it's always cool too. Again, you said like with the wrestling rhetoric, start slow. And as the movie got like this, things get bigger Build and bigger and bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger. And it's like, and then the movie culminates with a really big thing. So uh, all that being definitely understood by John Woo uh, shows kind of why I'm, like this movie fits well on Thursday Night Prime, but a lot of his stuff probably doesn't because because it's probably too well made yeah, really exactly. to fall into the category of what we do here. But this one is a great example, I think, uh, as far as like a high level action film, something that was released theatrically and stuff like that, but definitely still fits the mold for Thursday Night Prime and what it's all about. I got a tidbit of trivia for you. Hey, adding a quote that, that stand out. Trivia-wise, uh, Universal, who produced the film, was afraid that John Woo's limited English would be a problem on set. So they hired Sam Raimi to oversee the entire shoot and replace Woo if need be. So yep. um, that's you know obviously Ted's involvement as well, as, as you had mentioned. And, and this was a hilarious quote because uh, Van Damme, we always love Van Damme's goofiness. Uh, so Natasha Binder says, what kind of name is Chance? Well, my mama took one. Like, great job, Van Damme. Dude, that's like the one fucking, like, that Lance Henriksen got some great lines in this one where he's like, you're a fucking buffalo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when he gets pissed, it's that classic thing. He's just yelling at everybody. It's just funny. Yeah, and he's good at that. So, like, you know, at least they did give him a little bit. But, like, it felt like he didn't get enough screen time, really. Like, this is, I mean, not complaining either, but this movie's more about Van Damme just kicking the shit out of like all his cronies uh, for oh, of course. 97 minutes, essentially, and anybody that kind of comes in his way. Um, but, you know, overall, not a bad movie, not a great movie. Um, definitely not where I would point somebody to if they were interested in John Woo, but probably one of the better efforts that Van Damme was involved with at the time. It was kind of like, I hate to say it, but a lot of it went downhill from this point for him. Right, and it, as it far as cool quality to, goes, the the New Orleans setting kind of added to the film too. Yep, because uh, like you mentioned, the the kind of climax they end up at like this factory that has like this the kind of floats and parade stuff from Mardi Gras and everything. Like yep. uh, you know the dude that, that plays Emotep, uh, Arnold Vuslo, uh, pick he he ends up blowing up a Mardi Gras seagull that Van Damme jumps off yeah. of and shit like yep. that. So it, it was as we always say, dude. It was it was entertaining, you know. Other than like I mentioned here and there, uh, nitpicking some some slower parts. Uh, I was kind of surprised uh, rewatching this. Like you mentioned, we haven't watched this in some time. Uh, I thought it kind of move would move a little quicker than it did at portions. But other than that, the big action sequences and everything were fun. 
and and I enjoyed revisiting it and uh, just wrap it up by saying uh, you kind of already alluded to this. Hey, Ed, but Wilford Brimley's character is Van Damme's uncle Boudreaux, a terrible Cajun accent. Like he, he was, uh, he did much better in the thing. Let's put it that way. Again, it's weird too, because it's a pretty accomplished actor. And the fact that he sticks out is somebody doing a horrible job in something like this <laughs> is, is pretty wild. Um, yeah, I was like, wait a minute, is he have an accent in this too? Like, I forgot that he was in it, and then I'm like, oh, I totally forgot he had, like, this weird Creole fucking accent, so. <laughs> and, dude, they didn't give a fuck back in the day. Like, the Van Damme sounds the same in every movie, and it's like, in this one, he plays Chance Bordreau, but then he, he plays, like, totally American dudes, and is, it's clear as fuck that he's not. So it's, like, <laughs> yeah. really weird that we just looked past that back in the day, but... It is what it is. But as we do here on the show, the J, hit us with a tagline for Hard Target. No, Hard Target has a good one. Don't hunt what you can't kill. Pretty simple and easy there. But as we do here on the show, five-star rating scale, the J, what do you got for Hard Target? Go three stars for Hard Target out of five. Great minds. It's the same thing that I had for it. Nothing mind-blowing, but still a fun little action movie, especially if, if you haven't seen it in a while. So... I was definitely glad to give it a rewatch, but we are up against our very last commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to wrap up the show, talk some goofs. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, Yins, guys. That's right. It's your boy, the J. Once again, as the great Chris Jericho used to say, representing the dub R question mark, the What's Real Podcast. And I am here today for local Pittsburgh area independent production company, Churchill Pictures. And the J can admit, for those consistently listening, week to week we have ads for Churchill Pictures. You may be rolling your eyes, but this time, this week, I have a gift for you where you can watch some of our feature films for free for the first time. For those that don't know, Churchill Pictures is based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, established from the bond of two childhood friends. Churchill Pictures envisions creating visual content that is completely original, thought-provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. Check all the information out at churchillpictures.com today. And as I said at the top of the ad, your chance to see their two feature films for free. Just subscribe to YouTube's Churchill Pictures channel. Go to YouTube, subscribe to the Churchill Pictures channel, and you'll be able to watch the full feature film, the 2012 Silver Ace Award winner from the Las Vegas Film Festival, Deference. Deference, the full movie, is for free on our YouTube channel. Then our second feature film, The Unsung, is now available for free on Tubi. Tubi is a free streaming site, just has a little bit of ads, but you can get used to them. Check us out on Tubi. All you have to do is register for Tubi, or if you're already registered, go on ahead and sign in on Tubi and just search The Unsung. The Unsung is now streaming for free on Tubi. Check us out today at churchillpictures.com or YouTube deference to be the unsung Churchill pictures. We create worlds and we're back. And my goodness, Jay, man, I didn't even realize all that. <laughs> lots of action, <laughs> but, lots of boobs. Yeah. It gets the Jay's blood flowing, baby. Yeah. We've come a long way, literally and figuratively. If you get my drift there, oh, yeah. uh, but that was the best of Thursday Night Prime for season four of the What's Real podcast. I hope you guys have enjoyed that. Now we're moving on to something a little bit different. Um, there's no doubt the What's Real podcast is our baby. It's we pick the content, the things that we want to talk about. And one of our favorite topics here on the show is, of course, movies. And uh, we came up with the idea of 
uh, we basically stole it from Netflix. Uh, the movies that made us, uh, you know, see, uh, series that they have on there. But we changed it up a little bit, and it is the movies that made us. So we like to present this to you guys because these movies are important to us. They're special to us. Um, and it's it's a really fun segment we do here on the show that isn't just reviewing movies. We kind of want to hit the backstory of why the movies are important to us in the first place. And obviously, again, that's something that you guys are going to see a little bit more of as well come season five. I, I always like to, to shout out the fact that, and, and it's something you said at the outset of when we were putting together the concept of what would become the What's Real podcast. As we always state, in the embryonic stage, we didn't even have an official title and everything. That went back and forth for some time. But you always mentioned that things were going to happen organic. And that's really where everything went. And of course, we, we have the, the quote-unquote pop culture umbrella that I eye-rollingly always bring up. But with that, one of our, our biggest loves mutual interest is film and organically which was my point to bringing that up it kind of evolved into not just having like oh let's do movie reviews on the what's real podcast it kind of created its own little segments and everything it evolved into these different little more specific segments so that we can pick particular movies and it would make sense the way that we talked about them and, and, and did bring them up and why that we chose them on the show and decided to spend time on them you know especially old movies that people have seen a ton of times or classics but that's what makes the movies that made us different because it's our own personal perspectives as lifelong film goers as we date ourselves with being kids of the 80s and 90s and being in our 40s now how we see things in the film film world how those films affected us as youths as we love to say on the show youths. <laughs> and, and and just enjoy movies and, and create these kind of sub segments if you will and the movies that made us was was one of the first big ones and and what we do with the movies that made us is kind of the more mainstream blockbuster-esque classics that sort of thing but but again for us you know we we've talked Conan the Barbarian and, and First Blood and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and just it's really fun to go on with you and, and and shoot the shit and chop it up on what those movies personally meant to us and how our our perspectives on those movies and, and viewing those over the years ha has been and, and also has changed to, to where we're at now. You know, like take Conan, for example, a movie that I've seen timeless amounts of times. You know, it, it's kind of talking about it as a 40 year old man, when I first saw it, when I was a teenager, you know, things like that. So uh, I think it's a really unique kind of concept of, of a concept that is kind of just a, a run of the mill movie review segment. You know, we kind of make it our own. Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy this segment. And this is kind of a, a look into our film watching psyche and the things that we absolutely love in the world of movies. So once again, guys, uh, this is, the movies that made us the best of season four, right here on the What's Real Podcast. Welcome back, and it is time once again for the movies that made us, as Jay likes to say, our original, unoriginal uh topic here where we go through and talk about some of the most important movies to us specifically this week is is a first i believe the jay here on the show where we we're going with a mutual pick uh this is from 1980 from director martin scorsese of course i'm talking raging bull 
When Jake LaMotta steps into a boxing ring and obliterates his opponents, he's a prize fighter. But when he treats his family and friends the same way, he's a ticking time bomb, ready to go off at any moment. Though LaMotta wants his family's love, something always seems to come between them. Perhaps it's his violent bouts of paranoia and jealousy, the kind of rage that helped make him a champ, but in real life, he winds up in the ring alone. Uh, movies probably most well-known besides Scorsese directing as Robert De Niro playing Jake LaMotta. He would win an Oscar for this. Uh, Joe Pesci, it, this is his breakout role. Uh, Kathy Moriarty's in this, Frank Vincent, uh, Mario Gallo, uh, pretty decent cast. Uh, also completely shot in black and white. Um, interesting point, too, to, to think about the Jay is uh, this and Elephant Man came out in the same year, two black and white movies well after the black and white era. Uh, Raging Bull's like an amazing movie for a lot of different reasons. Like, obviously, it's made well, uh, one best picture. Um, but, dude, it's, you know, it's an interesting true life story where it shows how, just how flawed the the main character is. And that that's pretty rare for the time, at least. And it's really the strength of the movie. Um, it's, it's a really, really interesting story, but it's a really ugly story, too. Um, and it's it to me, it's interesting too to the fact that it's Martin Scorsese to me's most standalone film. It doesn't look like his other films. It doesn't sound like his other like it's really something interesting that he tried to do, and it, it's quite an achievement for a million different reasons. He he would go on to talk about that, hey Ed, because he wasn't interested in sports. So De Niro really wanted to do this movie because it's based off of Lamada's book, Raging Bull, and. Uh, De Niro really, really wanted to do this, and he wanted Scorsese to direct. So he was trying to talk him into it for a long time. And yep. so, you know, that that I think is to your point why this kind of stood out from a lot of his other work. And dude, it's pretty incredible too. Uh, with with De Niro up to this point, um, he he'd been in The Godfather. Um, he did a lead role in Taxi Driver, and this is another one of them characters that's it's a completely different type of character, but not really. Like the characters that he was playing at this point were like incredibly flawed. Unhinged. Just, you know, the unhinged. Like you said, uh, ticking time bombs. Yeah, and dude, his portrayal of Lamada in this is pretty fucking like scary ridiculous at times. And Lamada's yeah, Lamont, I mean, in it too, the first scene. Yes. First boxing scene. And, and dude, he's a guy. That, like, I really wondered what he thought about his life. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. was he proud of this shit? Was he embarrassed by it? Like, you know, somebody like him took, like, a stupid amount of punishment. You know what I mean? Like, God knows what was wrong with this guy for real. Um, and it's, you know, like, the movie doesn't hold back on anything like it's a it's a really weird portrayal to a black and white movie because like it doesn't feel like an older so like they talk in ways that they wouldn't have in black and white movies and shit like that um and dude and the one thing that i'll say about this rocky's the greatest boxing movie of all time in my opinion but this is the best boxing's ever looked in a movie good call um, no matter what i don't and 
And, dude, I think the fights and shit, the way that they're done in Rocky are, like, masterful. Um, we've seen other movies come along since then about boxing that were, like, really well put together movies. Like, I'm not shitting on any of them. Um, but just, the dude, the, the music and the fucking way the fights are shot. And it's the, the you know, it's the poster, too. Like, that look into Lamada's fucking eyes kind of thing. Uh, they get that perfectly in the movie, too. It also for and for a guy like you were saying, like guy not in the sports, like Scorsese really understood the drama of boxing and what old boxing kind of was, and like there's so much attention to detail in this too. That's just exactly. that's what I was going to say. The atmosphere he creates with like the smoky arenas, you know, that yep. correlates to our always referenced pro wrestling. But that was such Dude, such cool shots. It, those shots remind me of like the old black and white photos you'd see from Madison Square Garden. Exactly. And I, I'm, that, was, like, that was probably what he was going for. And it's, dude, it's spot the fuck on. It, like, it really is. And it's interesting, too, as they show like this flawed, like, it's a guy that, like, clearly was designed to live his life in the ring, right? But boy, was that terrible for his outside life. He was super paranoid about women. Uh, he was an asshole to women. He was an asshole to everybody, frankly, at one point. Like, he just became kind of like a, t a detestable person. Um, but, dude, he's somebody that also, and this is why it's interesting, too. He's a guy that paid for all of his mistakes. Like, his, he's like alone, like a shitty life because it's, you know, you fucking burn enough bridges and that's what happens. And he's like living proof of that. And the movie has all those ebbs and flows in it. That's why it's such a cool story. Because it's not just about boxing. It's not just about this boxer's life. It's about all this stuff. And then again, on top of it, it's pretty much a true story. Yeah, I mean, you have the the book that it's based on. You have Jake LaMotta being involved in the production. That like th This is another one, like like we say, that that's you need these components to make a classic. And it's one of those things where the stars align and everything comes together. You got Robert De Niro, you got Jake LaMotta, you got the book, you got Scorsese on board and, and look what happens. You know, I mean, and we didn't even mention Joe Pesci yet. <laughs> so yeah, who is great. And of course, it, it, Kathy Mariotti, you got to mention her. Dude, this is Pesci's most interesting role, I think, um, because he's not like the fucking you know, the gangster and shit like that. Like, it's not, it's a different kind he's of He's kind of like a wannabe. He's like involved with the mafia guys because, you know, shout out to, in, in you know, Scorsese's movie catalog with Frank Vincent's character. Who, yep. You know, of course, you know, the famous character from, from Goodfellas, but this character's name is Sil Silva Bats. Yeah. Yep. So I so think that's cool. It's like the shout out to, to his, or I'm sorry, Salvi, Salvi Bats. But but yeah, he, he kind of tries to to bring the the mob influence into you know towards the beginning of the film to kind of get Jake a middleweight title shot and stuff. But uh, Jake Lamotta refuses the mafia's help, and he hates the fact that Joey is hanging with these guys and becoming friends with them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting character study, and like, dude, when you do a character study, like Pesci's like really good like set decoration for that type of shit. Like he flourishes in movies like that as like a side character. Um, and dude, it's also really weird too. Something I wanted to mention here. I don't even know if you're, if you knew this or not, Scorsese himself had suffered uh, 
almost a, a deadly cocaine overdose. I do remember right that. before this movie was made, and uh, yeah, and the bi- the biography of Jake LaMotta was shown to him by De Niro during a hospital visit, which is how they eventually agreed to do it. And it said like it was almost potentially Scorsese's last movie. Um, so like he was trying to make something that was like personal, even though it wasn't about him. Which again, a really interesting way to make a movie. You know what I mean? Like you're making a true story. Like there's only so much fluctuation you could do about the story. But that's what's really cool about this is it's kind of like to me like what Stanley Kubrick did to The Shining, like as the Stephen King book. Like he took the information and somehow like was able to like spin it out from his point of view or his world. Yeah, he made it his and own. Scor- yeah, and Scorsese's making this movie about Jake LaMotta, but he's putting a lot of the shit that he's going through and dealing with in the movie because LaMotta's such a sadly mess of a human being that it's a, it ended up being kind of a muse for him to use himself through the process. That's, you know, that's the shit to me that, like, a lot of times that people don't talk about the Jay, but, like, that's the stuff that makes, like, the absolute great directors... Like, people that can pull shit. Like, like every one of the major ones has some sort of a story or theme or something that they were able to put into a movie that's just more than typical filmmaking Man, shit. It's personal. Yeah, and it really, like, you can tell. Like, when you watch the movies, like, you can tell that that kind of stuff sits above and beyond just normal movies or, you know, they're the movies that people still talk. Like, we're talking a movie, you know, from fucking 43 years ago. Yeah, I, I was it, uh, one. You might not have been born. Yeah, and it's timeless. It's a timeless movie. The black and white thing adds to it. Like, you can watch this movie whenever. Speaking of that, hey, Ed, shout shout out uh, cinematographer Michael Chapman, Mm because he did amazing in this. And and for that matter, the editing, which was uh, Thelma Schoonmaker, because the two Academy Awards that Raging Bull won, it was nominated for eight. It ended up winning Best Actor for De Niro with his second, uh, besides The Godfather 2, and then Best Editing for uh, Thelma Schoonmaker, but I mean, just, and I fucked up for saying it won best picture earlier. Cause that yeah, was, it was nominated. Uh, it, uh, what the fuck is it uh, on golden pond? I'm pretty sure it's the one that won it in 1980 anyway. Yeah. Cause like you said, uh, the elephant man was tied um, with the nominations. They both had eight and neither one best yeah. picture, which is crazy. And dude, I've seen some really interesting shit about this movie too. Uh, like I've heard people kind of apply that like, this movie showing like LaMotta getting pummeled as kind of like, cause he was Catholic for like an atonement yeah, of like the shit that he was doing in his real life. So like he'd get in the ring and just basically let people fucking pummel him. Um, he didn't like himself. I think that's kind of evident in this movie. Like, I don't know how he felt about himself. Like as he got older, looking back on his life, but like, it's pretty clear with everything that I've read and, you know, obviously watching this movie and shit that like, He's a guy that just did not like himself and kind of lived his life as someone who didn't like himself. Like he didn't think he fucking deserved anything because he didn't like himself. Yeah. And, and that goes into how he treated people, of course, because if, if you don't like yourself, how are you going to treat other people? And it's, it's one of those things in life, you know, if you want to be able to help people, you know, you have to be in a right place, your, your damn self for the most part. So uh, that's a really good point. And I think that comes through, you know, especially with De Niro's, um, performance in this, you know, just unbelievable that he plays the older fat 
uh, you know, D'Amato when he's yep. fucking doing stand up <laughs> and running the club. And, and mm-hmm. then, and then he's of course in, in ridiculous shape, uh, for the boxing scenes. But you know, I remember reading, I think he gained around 60 pounds to play, yeah. to play him in the later years. And dude, watching the portrayal of Jake LaMotta by De Niro, it, dude, it's one of the most frustrating characters I've ever seen in my life. And I don't mean that that's a bad, por- like, it's just the character himself is just such an asshole. Like, as the viewer, you're just like, this fucking dude, yeah, it's man. Like, like, yeah, he's basically, oh. he's basically a villain. Yeah, basically, I mean, he yeah, beats it, the it, shit out of his wife. Yep. It's, I mean, dude, it's, he's just a loathsome human being. And it's a weird, like, because he, he, I mean, he was considered a hero by so many people, obviously, because he was a great boxer. From, so, yeah, like, from the Bronx. Yeah, just seeing, like, the dichotomy in that shit in the movie is pretty impressive that, you know, you can really push something like that. But, you know, I mean, this is, and it, dude, and this is a very important movie, you know what I'm saying, just due to the fact that it's the movie that set up Pesci. Um, De Niro at this point was like, he was in the stride of his greatest era. You know what I mean? Like, I know that he kind of started out hot, but like, this was the era where, you know, with shit like Taxi Driver, Deer Hunter, The Godfathers, this, like, it's, it's bonkers what his output was at a certain time period. And, you know, this is a big reason why, you know what I mean? It's like, just every few years. At this point, it would be like, you know, De Niro would kind of fucking remind everybody that he's like top of the food chain as far as actors went. Yeah, great. Great point, because that goes in. I was going to mention one of my favorite scenes, of course, because they, they just build it up so good. And, and the paranoia is just overtaking them. And Kathy Moriarty, his wife, she she can't take it anymore. And she's just like, yeah, I fucked your brother. He has a bigger dick than you. I sucked every cock in this neighborhood. What do you want me to say? And that's all he needed to hear. You know, you as the audience, you know she's being completely sarcastic. She's frustrated. She doesn't know what uh, anything else to say to him. He takes it yep. as there's my proof. She said she fucked my brother, so he walks over to to his brother's house while he's eating dinner with his family and just starts pummeling him. And it is yep. just such a crazy intense scene. That's where he turns around and he finally, because at this point he had just kind of pushed, pulled, and slapped. Kathy Moriarty's character and at this point with everything going on and after beating the shit out of Joey he turns around and punches her in the face as she's trying to intervene so I I mean it's just such an intense amazing scene it's just shot so well the build up you know makes it and it's yeah I just had to point that out yeah I mean it's you know and it's do a lot of people too I've seen that and I think this is pretty interesting too but I've read shit where they've talked about um you know Sharon Stone in the movie Casino and she kind of based her character off the Moriarty character from this. Like, just like a doormat doormat fucking woman who, like, literally needs to be fucking completely terrorized before she even remotely stands up for herself. And when she does stand up for herself, everything goes off the fucking deep end. Um, it's, dude, it's really weird. And, I mean, it's a great thing, but it's really weird to see a movie like this where, like, the secondary characters have a lot of multi-layering on it when it's clearly the Jake LaMotta story. Um, But that's also what makes it such a good movie. Like, there's really nothing, you know, like, great dialogue. It's written well. The characters are great. They're fleshed out. The acting performances are great. The cinematography is great. Like, this is, like, a film school movie. Like, everybody should watch, if you want to make movies, you should at least watch Raging Bull once 
whether you like sports or not, because there's it it has a lot of lessons in dramatic sequences and shit like that too, which is like there's just a lot of impressive stuff stuff about this movie. People have written books about it. Yeah, great point, man. I would definitely agree with that. And you know, I, I love the whole climax too to wrap things up. You know, especially as far as the plot goes, where he ends up moving to to Miami after retiring and buys a new nightclub. And that's where Vicky, his wife, uh, tells him she wants a divorce, which she had been planning since his retirement, and, and to take their kids too. And, and says like, you know, she'll call the police if he comes anywhere near them. And then he kind of spirals from there. He ends up introducing underage girls to men in his club, which gets him in trouble. And you know, so it's basically unknowingly they they tell him you know their ages are eighteen plus, but you can kind of tell the girl I think is like fourteen, super young looking, and he ends up going to jail. And, and those scenes are, are great too. He's just questioning himself and crying in despair in, in the jail and everything. And, and then they get the literal fall of Lamada at that point. Yeah, and he obviously hadn't seen his brother in years since uh, the scene we were talking about where he beats the shit out of them and terrorizes the family. So they show the scene where he encounters Joey. Um, and he does forgive him, but he's elusive. But that that's a great scene, too, where Joey's just ignoring him, trying to get in the car. He's like, come on, man, just give me a kiss. Just give me a kiss. Yeah, it's good, man. There's, a, there's just, again, the multi-layered performances and everything in this one make it a winner. Uh, if you guys haven't seen Raging Bull, I highly recommend you check this out. I, you know, probably the most recommended series that we would have on here would be the movies that made us. I uh, would assume. Yeah, that's why we do it. No, for sure. And uh, you know, that all goes into talking about classics that could have been a contender. You know, as Jake recited yeah. the scene from from on the waterfront and everything. Uh, but th- this was uh, something I was going to mention to you, Hey Ed, because I kind of looked into it. I wasn't completely sure because I was like. I know Jake LaMotta can't still be alive, but how, how long ago did he pass away? Because I, I, for, for some reason, I was remembering it was somewhat recently. Dude, he passed away in 2017. He was born yep. in 1922. That motherfucker yep. almost was 100 years old, dude. Yep. <laughs> Holy and shit. Like, what a life to be almost 100 after being a boxer that you didn't even care if he lived or died when you are in your 20s. Yeah, and on top of it, it's like that. Is that karma? Because that's a guy. Yeah, right. He, one to he live even, that yeah, yeah, could be. But yeah, I God. thought that was pretty crazy that he died in his late nineties. There. Yeah, absolutely. So we're about to go to our next commercial break, and whenever we come back, we're gonna have to fight these weird mutant people outside. Yeah, they're I was really getting slow. ready. I'm the, dude. Look at look at yeah, them, dude. They're slow. Up. They're yeah, they they're like, slow. That's fucking hilarious. I just called the submarine a slub, dude. Is this dude covered in Vaseline or something? I, that's that's why I don't want to fuck with them. They, they look good. All right. Oh, okay. All right. So I'm going to go get I, a bazooka, man. Well, I'm going to go get a sandwich because I'm not worried about these fucking weirdos. All right, I'll take care so. of them. I'm going to blow some shit Okay. Up. All right, guys. Well, we'll be back right after this with some Thursday Night Prime from 1987's Mutant Hunt right here on the What's Real Podcast. And we're back, and it is time once again for another edition of the movies that made us. This week, it was the Jay's choice. Could have easily been mine as well. We go back to 1987 with Stanley Kubrick's Vietnam flick, Full Metal Jacket. A pragmatic U.S. Marine observes the dehumanizing effects the U.S. Vietnam War has on his fellow recruits from their brutal boot camp training to the bloody street fight in Hue. Uh, Of course, this movie has a fantastic cast. 
uh, led by Matthew Modine as Private Joker. Adam Baldwin plays Animal Mother. Uh, the most unforgettable performance in it is Private Pyle, played by Vincent Donofrio, a.k.a. Vincent D. Onofrio. Uh, yeah. We have Arlie Ermey, of course, as the drill sergeant, and many, many more. Um, so let's just get started on this, Jay. This one starts out in boot camp. Uh, the opening scene of this movie uh, features Arlie Ermey essentially uh, welcoming all the troops to boot camp. And uh, my dad, by the way, who's a former Marine, uh, loves this movie. And the reason why is because he said that that opening scene is the most realistic thing he's ever seen about being in the military, specifically boot camp as Marines. Um, Of course, Arlie Army is a legitimate former uh, drill sergeant and brought a lot of his own personal experience from his time in the Marine Corps into those scenes. Um, And they seriously, man. And I, we've talked about this before here on the show. Um, this is me personally speaking here. Uh, he might not be my favorite, but I think without a doubt, Stanley Kubrick is the greatest director of all time. And this movie shows you a million reasons why. Uh, from the way he builds up characters, um, just to... Dude, the one thing that I love about Full Metal Jacket is, if you notice in this movie, anytime there's a scene that is like a major impactful scene, he either does a slow in or out zoom on a character. And once that happens, like once he's zooming in on them or zooming out of them, whatever happens next is like like jaw dropping almost. And, you know, they go through the entire scenes of them going through the boot camp. And then you have the breakdown of the private uh, pile character uh, played by Vincent Donofrio. Um and it that's seriously one of the one of my favorite performances of all time. Uh just the way that character breaks down. And you know there's probably a good reason for that with the way that Stanley Kubrick made movies. And there there's no doubt in my move in my mind that the way Kubrick gruelingly made movies, that these guys were put through hell uh in this film. Yeah, it's dude, it's so intense. And and like you said, for the for the Jay here to start, hey, uh you had chosen uh, Clockwork Orange for yeah. the movies that made us in the past. So I had to get uh, my my love for Kubrick on here too, and and definitely went to Full Metal Jacket because this movie well, was just something that uh, I first saw in college, and so that that brings me back and just always just blew me away because um, you know I know you mentioned your dad being a Marine, my dad as well went to Vietnam. He was he was very lucky. He got deported to uh, North Korea, which saying that in 2023 doesn't sound lucky, but he didn't get sent to Vietnam. You know, yep. he has a very interesting story about his experiences in Vietnam. But, you know, we just had that personal background, too. And, and I always did enjoy war movies because that was another thing. We haven't had a war movie on uh, the movies that made us here on the What's Real podcast yet. So what better one to start with than Kubrick and Full Metal Jacket? Um, and, and yeah, like you said, I mean, just the, the boot camp, be, you know, beginning at, at uh, where was it specifically Paris Island? Yep. And, and of course, I mean, the great in this, I mean, that, you know, they got him to, to portray the drill sergeant because of his past experience, like you said, but he would go on uh, Ermy to be an amazing actor. Yeah. And, it's, and it all started with stuff. this. And it all started with this just, just for probably getting the role to be the most realistic drill sergeant that, that you know, Kubrick probably found in in his search and and from the outset here uh for those that don't know 
uh, this film is based on Hasford, uh, Gustav Hasford. Uh, he wrote a 1990, a 1979 novel called The Short Timers. And, and he went on to co-write the screenplay with Michael Herr and Stanley Kubrick. So uh, Kubrick going straight to the source, having the, the novelist uh, writing the screenplay with him is another thing in the background that I'm sure made this, you know, what it would become. Absolutely. Um, and I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but would, would you say that this is probably Kubrick's most accessible film? Like it's the it because a lot of his stuff is weird or you yeah know, yeah because Clockwork Orange is is wild you know The Shining he changed the the novelization a lot I mean that's a known fact that Stephen King hates the film and everything even though I'm a huge one that could easily be on this as well yep. but but yeah no I I definitely agree with you it's it's more straight to the point um, you know the, I'm not talking about the content of yeah you know yeah. Kubrick a Kubrick Vietnam movie but yeah as far as what you're saying as far as like the story and, and things like that. Uh, definitely. And the title of the movie refers to the full metal jacket bullet used by military servicemen. So that's where they got it from. Um, the One of the things that I've always liked about this movie, uh, if you and there's been plenty of other ones, obviously the, the, the most comparable one is probably uh, Oliver Stone's Platoon. Um, but when it comes to a lot of movies about Vietnam, uh, the director or the writer has certain, you know, biases and, and, they they get across the way they feel about the war in the movie. Um, and Stanley Kubrick did not do that at all here. Uh, the movie is pretty much presented as a it is what it is type scenario. Uh, you do see the, 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 the war through the eyes of different characters in the movie, but it didn't feel like there was ever a moment where Stanley Kubrick was trying to be heavy handed and tell you if he agreed with the war or disagreed with the war. He kind of leaves that up. Uh, to the you know to the viewer itself, which I think is incredibly interesting, and yeah. and also and I, I know that this will probably vary with people. I think this is Matthew Modine's shining moment. This is his best role he's ever had in his career. Uh, his Joker. private Joker. I mean, he's so yeah. fucking good in this movie, man. He plays like the every it, like out of all the different characters you run across in the movie. At least to me, he's the one that's supposed to come across as like who you are going through that situation. Um, you know, where you, you have to step up at certain times, where you disagree with things at certain times, where sometimes you're even looking at your fellow soldiers like these fucking dudes are nuts. Um, and dude, this is also to a great performance by Adam Baldwin. And this is Animal Mother, who's easily the most offensive character in the entire movie. But uh, when push comes to shove, like there's that uh, whenever you first meet him in the movie and the other guy comes up to him and he's like to Joker. And then when they're about to get into it. He's like, this might be hard to believe, but he's like, but when the shit hits the fan, Animal Mother's one of the best human beings to have in the world on your side. And you see that as the movie unfolds when they get into the battle <laughs> yeah. scenes that like, he's a bad motherfucker. And no matter if you like him or not, he's a dude you want on your side. Did you know this little trivia, hey, uh, that originally considered for the role of Sergeant Animal Mother, the first considered uh, was Arnold Schwarzenegger. Who yeah, wrote it down because he was doing the Running Man as, a, as the leading man. I've heard that, but I don't. I honestly don't think him and Kubrick would have. You know, in in 1987, which was when you know Schwarzenegger was just uh, absolute dynamo in Hollywood, like he was one of the major bankable stars. I I don't think Kubrick would have worked well with that. That's probably why. Yeah, it was just best not to work out as far as that went. One one thing I wanted to say too, hey Ed, we, we always mention we're, we're breaking down all these films from week to week on the What's Real podcast, and we always talk about the, the three acts 
that, that most films are comprised of. You know, you got your act one, act two, act three. This film is basically act one and act two. Yeah. When you kind of think about it, where the first portion primarily focuses on privates Davis and, and Lawrence, yep. Joker and Powell, the, the whole thing with the uh, drill instructor and gunnery sergeant Hartman and everything that goes on at boot camp. And then the second half is, of course, when they actually are in combat in Vietnam and the whole experience. And then, you know, maybe you could break it down to the third act being the the climax with them and the sniper scenario yeah, that kind of yeah, takes things home. Yeah, this isn't so much about the war itself. It's literally you're just kind of following a group of guys through boot camp. Exactly. And, and that's that's why it's so accessible, like you were saying, because it's really simplified, all things considered, when you're talking about a film by Stanley Kubrick about Vietnam. Yeah, it just put it this way. Vietnam is essentially just the background of the film. It has nothing to do specifically with the war. I mean, they do show you, you know, it, it gets across like the way that the, you know, like the stuff with the prostitutes and, and what it's like for the soldiers in Vietnam when they weren't fighting and things like that. They show you that kind of stuff. Um, they obviously, but dude, I'll tell you right now, the movies, it, it's the opening stuff at the boot camp is very well done. It's well written. It's well acted, and it's it's pretty impactful. Obviously, with the uh, the private Powell character uh, played by Deanna Frio, it, you know it it basically climaxes with him shooting a drill sergeant, shooting Ermy, and then killing himself. And Modine sees all of that. He's the only one that sees all of that. Then it immediately shuts down and goes into them in Vietnam. Uh, but the thing is, man, like. That that scene, once the whole scene starts with the sniper, that's when fucking Kubrick really starts to shine. I mean, the scenes where whenever the, the soldier runs out and gets hit by the sniper and they're all, you know, basically barracked up waiting for the tank to come. And, the, you know, they want to go in and get the guy. And he's like, you know, cowboys, like, I've seen this before. It's a fucking trap. Don't do it. Then the other guy's like, fuck this. I'm going to go drag him out. And they... That scene where you're the third person camera is basically like acting as the sniper. As the, yeah, yeah. Like, dude, that shit is fucking phenomenal. Like, that's like film school 101 type shit. Like, if you want to make movies, that is something you need to see. Because, like, dude, let's be honest. Kubrick was a master with shit like that. And he was fucking flexing in some of the, like, where do you see yeah, he was. this shit? Like, yeah. It's really like it's self-indulgent, but not in a bad way because Kubrick is so fucking good that like you're really watching a master at work during some of those scenes. And dude, the uh, the fact, too, that so like, OK, it's 1987. You're shooting a fucking movie about Vietnam, right? So you're not going to go to Vietnam and and shoot something like this, because especially for what they were trying to do, like th this movie was not like. In the jungles of Vietnam. You know what I mean? So what they did is they fucking shot this stuff in England. And the the whole, you know, the um the Paris Island stuff was shot on a British army base. And that doesn't come across at all. It feels like that was shot in America, like, you know, what have you. But uh they apparently got Belgian tanks. And uh, Wessex helicopters for the movie. And whenever they went to go shoot, like, I guess all the stuff that was in the, uh, you know, like the sniper stuff and all that stuff. Uh, they shot that, I believe. There was, I want to say some of that was done in England as well. Yeah, England, yep. And, like, 
it's so like that looks so like it's one thing when you can see everything right but if you remember like in the movie like like you know the part at the end where they're like singing the mickey mouse club thing and like the skies are fucking red and they're smoking that is one of the most amazing fucking sets i've ever seen in anything ever it looks fucking amazing like they look like they're walking through hell in that scene and that's when the movie kind of ends like it's it's an anticlimactic ending but not really you know what i mean like it's like yeah. basically it's it like works. the the war marches on and yeah. this is and they're treating you the viewer intelligently that's what i like about it because they're basically saying to you as the viewer like you know what happened with vietnam right like do we really need to to do that part to go over this again yeah, yeah like we would just wanted to feature these guys in this story and this specific group of characters and that's what it is and obviously it concludes with joker kind of like you know talking about you know, the, like some some uh, callbacks and things that you've seen in the movie and shit, because he basically says like you know like being in the shit, which is something that me and you famously use just about life in general. Yeah, right. Uh, but like, man, the, it's a hell of a movie. It's super powerful, great acting performances, and it's really like Kubrick's really kind of showing off like his his gusto and how well how good of a filmmaker he is in this movie, and it comes across in pretty much every fucking frame. Yeah, because that, that, that is kind of where we're at here with the, the climax. You know, I always love that because I know when we were talking about it earlier today and, you know, we were just prepping for the podcast and stuff. And you're like, man, like this is damn near two hour movie. And it just it flies. You know, watching it for the first time in a while. It flies. You're like, you know, they get to the, the sniper scenario. I'm like, oh, they're they're at this part already. And, and that that's just, you know, such a good climax for this that I think it was the right thing obviously to, to end it the way that he did, like you said, as far as like where we fade out, because you know, it all leads to the cowboy dying after he takes over the squad, the snipers taking everybody out and Joker and animal mother uh, kind of track her down. It turns out that the snipers, a, a teenage girl. And dude, and, you know, she, I love that fucking scene because he's like, they shoot her. And it's like, oh, she's down. Yeah. She's mortally and, wounded. And then they argue on what, what to do. Yeah. And, but that scene is so great because it's like, you know, animal mother's like, fuck her, let the rats eat her. And he's like, we can't leave her like this. And he's like, he's like, I'm the squadron leader. And I say, we fucking leave her. And he's like, I'm saying we can't leave her. And I don't want to run the squadron. Like, he's just trying to say, like, we need to do what's fucking right here. This is another human being. And they that's a playback, too, to, like, earlier whenever, you know, they, they touch ground and they're the war reporters. And that one colonel calls him over. And he's like, you have a peace sign on your shirt. And he's like, and it says on your helmet, born to kill. He's like, what does that mean? He's like, I don't know what that means. He's like, boy, you don't know a lot. And he's like, I guess not. And then he's like. No, but again, he's like, I'm going to ask you one more time. He's like, what does that mean? He's like, I guess I'm trying to suggest something about the duality of man, sir. And that's really what the point of the whole movie is. Yeah. Like, same thing with that scene whenever they're flying over there on the helicopter and his buddy's throwing up everywhere. And that dude's just fucking shooting everybody. He's like, get some, get some. And he's like, have you shot any women and children? And he's like, yes, tons. And he's like, how do you do it? And he's like, He's like, they run slower or whatever. He's like, ah. he's like, ain't war hell. And then the scene just like fades out. Like it's, there's a lot of scenes in the movie that are only in there to just kind of show you how to build fucked that up. up of a situation it is. Yep. And again, that like 
you know, characters that are trying to do the right thing, guys that are just trying to survive and get through. Uh, there's the one guy that gets, whenever they're getting interviewed for uh, the TV station, and uh, they're like, uh, do, do you feel like uh, America belongs in Vietnam? And he's like, hell, I don't know. He's like, I know I belong in Vietnam. And that's the dude who, when they first get over there and they meet Animal Mother and uh, uh, Cow- Joker man. meets Cowboy for the first time, that guy's like, he's like, you want to take an interesting picture? And it, there's the dead Viet Cong with him. And he's like, today is his birthday. Like, that dude's so far gone. And you already yeah. saw that scene. So whenever he's like, I don't know if America should be here, but I know I should be here. That dude's so fucking far gone. It's not even funny. Yeah. You know, it's so well portrayed. Yeah. And they do. There's characters that are well balanced people that are just soldiers. There's other guys that like, it's like their whole purpose in life is just to murder shit. Like, and like animal mother. And you're there with them. You have to fight side by side with those guys. And sometimes those guys can be your undoing and get you fucking killed. You know, like, yep. uh, uh, I think Cowboy even says that in his interview with the TV station where he's like, he's like, yeah, he's like, sometimes I wonder, he's, he's like, I'm, I'm pretty sure about the Vietnamese, but he's like, but sometimes I wonder about our own boys here kind of thing. And it's like, because you, everybody's losing their shit, you know, it's, it's such a fantastic movie and they get so much out of the stuff without having to show you a lot. And that's yeah. what's so impressive to me. And it, it dude. Kubrick's a fucking master, and this movie's as good of an example as anything he's ever made as to why. Yeah, it's beautiful. And, and, and like you said, man, that final shot, just such a beautiful set, just such a, a memorable visual with Joker's narration, and he's conveying that, like we said, despite being in the shit, in the world of shit, he's just glad to be alive and no longer afraid. And then and what do they do? It just fades out. Whenever they bring up the, the, cre- the credits, they're playing the stones. Yeah. Paint it black, Paint which it black. which I think is the reason why so many people associate that song with Vietnam anyway, is because exactly. of that, that specific credit sequence. And yep. dude, and again, hundred percent, they got the stones to do that, like to, to let them use that and shit. It's like, and that's another thing too. Stanley Kubrick is the only director that I've ever known that's essentially lorded over a studio because Warner Brothers let him do anything he fucking wanted to, and that's yeah. another example of that. So. Dude, I love this movie. I've always loved this movie. I think it's essentially flawless. I think it's one of the greatest movies ever made. It's my I favorite agree. war movie of all time. It's not only is it the most accessible Stanley Kubrick movie ever made, it's, I think it's definitely one of his best. And it was probably, I like stuff that he made. I like Eyes Wide Shut a lot, actually. This is the last time to me that he made something that was completely flawless. And due, due to uh, his untimely death and working on eyes wide shut at the time full metal jacket was his last film that was released uh when he was alive yeah and that's crazy to think about and that's basically a 10-year difference because and i saw martin scorsese bring this up because uh he said like you know people who bring up stanley kubrick as one of the greatest directors of all time but then they they kind of say it like insultingly that but he only made so many movies and scorsese's like that's true but like every time he made a movie it was like this massive event and he's like, sure. He only made certain amount of movies, but he's like, but you can always go back and revisit them and find something else in them that maybe you didn't notice before. And he's like, I don't know a lot of filmmakers that can kind of leave you with a legacy of stuff like that. That's a small legacy, but that like everything that he made is fairly instrumental and important 
and in a different yeah, genre too, by the way. And meanwhile, he's credited with 16 films, which, you know, it's not like he made four or five. And, you know, so. but granted, I think that they always said this that like, um, Dr. Strangelove kind of marked the first time that he got to make a movie completely on his own. Like he had yeah, full reign over Lolita, the product. Spartacus. Yes, yeah, Spartacus is not that before it. That's before that. Lolita's one that's considered his. Uh, fucking Dr. Strangelove is considered mainly his. Uh, Barry Lyndon, Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket. 2001. Uh, 2001 and Eyes Wide Shut are also and considered his. And The Shining, of course. Um, And dude, that's I mean, I know it was a different era as far as Stephen King goes, but how many filmmakers have been able to take a Stephen King movie and be like, no, 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 we're doing this. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's why like many consider it the best, best Stephen King adaptation. So I probably do, frankly, all about opinion. Hey, yeah, you're not going to buttholes. You're not going to meet us beat a Stanley Kubrick film to me like they're just. Like everyone that we just named, like I, I pretty much love everyone that we just named in some degree. I think some exactly. are better than others, but I think they're all vastly important. They've all been studied. Like there's college courses about Kubrick and his work, and that's why because the stuff is that instrumental and important to the history of film. Like he, he has more movies in his his uh, you know repertoire that are probably in the you know the. Um, Oh, why am I losing a brain fart in here? Uh, like the Library of Congress and shit. You know what I mean? Oh, like, gotcha. Yeah. Like they're all instrumental. Like all the, the the preserved ones. Yeah, they're all that important. And I don't know if too many other filmmakers can say the same thing. That you know, that's it's the mark of an absolute great. And like I said, so I think Stanley Kubrick is most likely the greatest director of all time. And as is tradition on the show, such a great tagline with Full Metal Jacket. Oh yeah. In Vietnam, the wind doesn't blow. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And also, here's another one. Vietnam can kill me, but it can't make me care. Yeah. It's a cool one. Full Metal Jacket, man. So 1987, absolute classic. Uh, totally stands up and is a very, very good reason why we brought it up on the movies that made us a movie that's important to both of us for sure so and once again 1987 man fuck yeah talk about with just the horror genre then you have full metal jacket i even mentioned running man yeah 87 was that a movie and dude 87 is one of the more instrumental years for me as far as that's what i mean yeah you know watching movies and shit like that so uh you know can't argue with that but we are up against our very last commercial break here, the J. And whenever we come back, we're going to wrap the show up and talk some goofs. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Herman James with the What's Real Podcast. Finally giving me something to do here. It's been a while since I talked to you guys, but I'm actually helping them out doing an advertisement for advertisers. That's right. If you would like to advertise here on the What's Real Podcast and join the team, just shoot us an email today. We got cheap, easy, and affordable rates, and we could hook you up with some kick-ass advertisements. Just hit us up at Gmail. It's at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. That's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Join the team with me, my brother Timothy James, the wizard behind the boards, Cam, the J, and Hey Ed. It's the What's Real team for some advertisers. Hit us up, whatsrealpod at gmail.com today. And welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed uh, the best of season four movies that made us segment there. Uh, but now we're moving along to another movie segment that we do here on the show uh, that is quite different. And basically what me and the J wanted to do with this next uh next segment and this next you know point that we do on the show is we wanted to talk about movies that really just didn't fit anywhere else 
uh, on the show. And uh, we do have very eclectic tastes in movies. And a lot of the weird and wild stuff that we like ends up here. And of course, I'm talking about Fridays at Midnight. Uh, Fridays at Midnight is a segment where we figured that we wanted to bring a segment where we could talk about movies that a lot of people did not know about. Um, this is an area where me and the Jay are kind of pulling out weird things that we've loved or found through the years that we don't think many people have heard about, or at least we would just rather shine a different kind of light on. And it also gives us the opportunity to, to go to some of the deeper, deeper, darker areas of the world of cinema. And the Fridays at Midnight segment that we do is just that. Uh, it's another organic segment that we came up with uh, here on the show. And, uh, you know, it's been a lot of fun. And it's one that has legs beyond almost any of the other segments that we do movie-wise. Because there's so much stuff out there that fits the bill for this one that, like, we're almost never going to run out. That's exactly how I look at it. And season five is going to be banging because this is a segment I don't even think we scratch the surface with. You know, no. I, I have the, the notes lists on my iPhone of ideas for this segment. And it's just I, I just keep adding to it. And we've barely even touched an iceberg uh, of what this segment can be. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Hey, Ed, it was another organic idea that kind of took a life of its own. And we wanted to kind of explore films that a lot of people may not have even ever heard of. Uh, we even did one last year, uh, the last season with a personal friend of ours, independent film and things like that. And we, we even really, really broke down or talked about any of my films with Churchill pictures is it, something we could do, but it, it gives us such a, uh, an opportunity to really dig into the, the wild and the weird uh, of the film world. So that's why I think this is a really fun segment to be a part of and, and come up with different ideas for, and in, in, in our choices on what we're going to cover in this, you know, I, and again, I, I am licking my chops, thinking about some of the cool stuff we can do in season five with Fridays at midnight. And it's the same way with me, the J. So if by chance you guys have just joined us recently, because Fridays at midnight is a, a segment we haven't done for a little while on the podcast, but we did obviously do them this year. So if this is a new thing to you, hope you guys enjoy this. This is the best of season four Fridays at midnight right here on the what's real podcast. The crippled masters. They are Frank Shum and Jack Kong, featuring also the yoga grandmaster Ho. You'll see it all in The Crippled Masters, coming soon. And we're back, and it is time for Fridays at Midnight Part 2 here, this time with 1979's The Crippled Masters. Two men, one a lowly peon and the other a dutiful nobleman, are betrayed by their master and crippled for life. One left with no arms and the other with paralyzed legs. Despite their obvious disadvantages, they strive to seek revenge against their evil master. The two men endeavor to track down the fabled eight jade horses said to hold the key to special martial arts techniques. Uh, this is directed by La Chi. Um, and it's one of the most insane movies of all time. <laughs> this movie does not have anyone you would recognize or know in it. Um, a lot of people have referred to this movie as a disgrace, shameful, exploitive. Um, but it's really one of the most amazing things you'll ever, ever see. It's definitely a fucked up movie. Um, but it's interesting. And it's kind of cool because, like, it is one of those things that Jay were like, 
you've never seen anything like this. I kind of it, like it struck me when I was rewatching it. Um, but you know Todd Browning's Freaks, of course, yeah. This is the kung fu version of Freaks. Like it kind of is. Like it's the evil dickhead that's like clearly just fucking people over until they've had enough. That's what and I don't think is exploitative because it's well, all within the story. You know, it's like. It, I understand people maybe getting offended that are disabled, like, and I can't touch that. But to my opinion, I don't. I think they use the, you know, the whole situation respectfully. That's the exploitive nature of it. Like they're putting, you know, real life amputees and people like that in the movie. Um, I, you know, I mean, how many opportunities are these people? That's get what I mean. In a that's, movie, so yeah, I, that's you know i like i can see if they're making fun of them i just feel like they treat the source material respectfully I mean, and they don't really and, you know and let's be honest dude the fucking fight scenes in this are impressive ridiculous shit yeah like for super low budget guys, in 79 the stuff these guys can do is amazing like it really that's it dude this movie the premise and how fucked up it is will suck you in and then the moment the fight scenes start, you'll be like, holy shit, this movie's not fucking around. Um, this is also one of those things that I think about the J. Like, this movie was a pretty big deal on 42nd Street uh, upon its release, right? I could not imagine seeing this movie with that fucking audience. Like, people must have been going completely nuts. Yeah. That, that like, walking into this... Yeah. Not really. Like, you kind of know what they're going for, but like, you don't. Re and watching it play out, your mind would be fucking blown. I know that's how I felt the first time I saw this. Oh, yeah. Cause it's, it's bookended by two of the best things ever. It's like the beginning part when the evil master turns on them and cripples both of them. Yep. And how how their downfalls go where they're just like tossed around because they're amputees like they, yep. they get gorilla pressed at least three times each yeah and, and it's like brutal and then the whole build up with the master that finds them and teaches them and how yep. they learn to work together and that whole montage where like the one dude's using his legs the other dude's using his arms and it all builds up to the climax which is unreal where they come back for revenge. So like the buildup of it is, is really good too. It gets me every time. And, and you could tell me, I don't know uh, if you stumbled on this earlier, Hey Ed, but this was a high school movie. Like speaking of word of mouth, I remember a group of friends and goofs in high school, everybody was talking like, did you see crippled masters? So I remember like that going around, you know, where we finally saw it over a friend of ours house. Dude. Yeah. It's this movie. Is was it so high school bonkers. for you? Yeah. It was yeah, I thought so. Yeah. Me. I thought we all, found it then um and i was already like a kung fu movie guy like yep, i love exactly. bruce lee shit so it's like wait a minute what is this and like through the years like it's just like regular movies like we have like normal movies and then there's like b movies right in japan and korea and hong kong there's a whole subsect of like b kung fu movies like lower budget ones and shit and just like horror and things like that, what they had to do to compete with the bigger studios is they had to like go for way more outrageous subject matter or be way more gory or have way more nudity in them because that's to something stand out. That they, yeah, they would stand out. This is literally the example of this. Like they went for something that's just so out of left field. And the feats that these guys, like the, there's a guy in the movie that essentially has no arms. He has like stubs. But like 
when you're watching this dude like whipping around fucking bamboo sticks and shit, it's unbelievable. Like that this dude can do the stuff that he can do. And and talk about character development. Where you like are so, at least for me, talking for myself, like I get so behind these guys again because of that buildup that I was referring to that the film's three acts comprise, you know, are comprised of. And you're like completely behind them because they're, you know, completely turned on. The villain's great in this. You know, you, it, you definitely he's hate a him. Bastard, man. He's a piece of shit. You hate him. So it's great because he does his job, obviously. And, and that leads to the, the two leads. Again, like as the audience member, you can't wait for the revenge, which is all part of a, a revenge flick like this. You know, it has to be built up right in, in yep. revenge movies or, or kick ass. And that's exactly what this is. But yeah, you really get behind these guys because of their deficiencies. And, and like you said, once they start training and you see the shit they can do, I don't know how you can't be behind them. Yeah. And it, dude, they're really good at this too. And I don't know why this is such a like a big selling point in kung fu movies in general. But like, if you notice this in a lot of kung fu movies, the J, it's always like, there's like a class struggle. It's always like the, yeah, I think that's part of the culture or yeah. It's like, you're always rooting for like the poors or the, the underprivileged people, or, you know, the, you, you push the people around enough and they're going to revolt kind of shit. Like that's always tied into this stuff. And it's just such a, it works like I think anybody can kind of like understand that or at least grasp what they're going for. So it works. And, you know, like you were saying, it does such a good job at building up like this asshole villain that you just can't wait to see him get his comeuppance. And that's literally the selling point of the movie, you know. And in the meanwhile, they there's some other stuff and some funny shit, you know, things like that. But like. Overall, that's really, you're just kind of waiting for that to pop off. And when it does in this one, like, it's pretty fucking cool. Like, I, I like, I love movies that set that standard of like, like, this is a movie from 1979. I still have never seen anything quite like it. Like, I don't care if it's low budget. I don't care if it's foreign. I don't care the filmmaking techniques. Like, they did something here that no one's ever done before or after them. So to me, that's like a film benchmark. Trailblazing, man. We talk about those kind of things, and that's definitely what Crippled Masters is. And one of the backbones of this, hey, Ed, is the two Crippled Masters chemistry and build-up is great as well. Where are enemies. We always say, as, as a movie from 79, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. But yeah, they, they kind of start off as enemies because the one, one dude gets crippled before the other, before the evil master turns on him. So he's kind of involved with the first one's demise, and then he ends up right with them. So the the one's determined. You know, this is the one with the stubs for arms. He's he's determined to just uh, completely torture the other crippled master until he kills him, and then the master steps in and, and gets them to align and everything. But that's like such a cool part, you know, how yes. they're enemies at first and hate each other, but then they learn to work to get together and basically become the crippled brothers. Now, dude, I've always kind of been curious about this. So I know you're familiar with Shaw Brothers movies, right? Yep. So Shaw Brothers made a movie called Crippled Avengers. Uh, but the thing is, all the handicapped people in it are able-bodied. Like, there's nothing wrong with them. They're just portraying characters like that. And it makes me wonder if somebody saw that and were like, we can do this with people with real issues because um, both of the guys, the lead star, it stars Jackie Kahn and Frankie Shum. Uh, both uh, paralyzed from the waist down. 
Um, well, I'm sorry. Frankie Shum was paralyzed from the waist down, but Jackie Kahn's the guy that was born with no arms. Um, I don't know how they were found, but they also, too, to make them leads. That's pretty wild. Like, yeah, it's a big risk. You would, you would assume that they would have two able-bodied people that somehow represented them, and then that's how they would bring them in the fold. They don't even fuck around with that in this. So it's a pretty amazing thing for that. Like, I would really like to see, because I think through, like we were talking about, like through the years, this movie's kind of gotten a bad reputation as being like exploitive. But I guarantee you, like, if somebody today that like had these deficiencies watched these movies, I think they'd feel differently about it. I really do. Yeah, that's that's how I feel. I, I feel like, and again, you would have to ask somebody that's disabled, but it's two legitimately disabled people that agreed to do this, and, and I think went quite obviously from watching this all out. You know, like they took, like I keep saying, they took it very seriously. It's not like a tongue in cheek thing or anything like that. I mean, these dudes kick ass in this movie. Yeah, and and it's not really like you said, like they're not making fun of anybody that's crippled. It's the the bad guy. It's the character. That's what that's yeah, what it's, he literally like cripples people. Like he the yeah, guy gets his legs burned off with acid. Oh, like, it's brutal. I mean, they that's part of the building of the story. But you know, once they do that, then it's like they're not he's not like laughing at them because they're crippled. He like is just he's about money. He he's wants evil. rent and yeah, he's a dickhead just over money. So and he will do whatever to get his money. And these people have kind of had enough. But uh, Crippled Masters is a really fucking cool movie. I definitely recommend it just for the sheer fact that you've never seen anything quite like it. Obviously, it's not going to be for everybody. Some people might have a few issues with uh, the folks in the movie being crippled. Um, if you can obviously look past that, it's a great film. Um, I definitely recommend it. I even think if you do have a problem with the crippled thing, you should still give it a try to kind of see what we're talking about. Um, it doesn't really make fun of them. They are the heroes of the movie after all. And uh, yeah, you're not going to spend 90 minutes finding something quite like this ever. I, I remember finding it in high school, Hey Ed, and just not having any idea. And as a teenager, you're just thinking it's going to be like a comedy and you're like ready to laugh. And then yep. like, like you said, we respected Kung Fu films and we're into that stuff. So I remember, yeah, we, that's why we passed it around. We're like, dude, no, it's actually fucking awesome. It's like they're selling points. These dudes fucking kick ass. Like it's yeah. entertaining. It's, it's crazy. Not boring. It's not stupid. Like, yeah, right. It's it's a feat. You know what I mean? And not too many movies give you shit like that. You know what I mean? Like it's it's pretty impressive for what it is. So that's why I picked it here for Fridays at Midnight, which I think in a lot of ways, the Jay, this is probably going to be the one segment that we do on the show that's probably going to introduce people to stuff they had no idea really ever existed. Like it's the perfect form for that kind of stuff. And we were talking about this before, before we even went on the air as far as this goes, but like we have more content for Fridays at midnight than we would anything. And, uh, and more is we, coming ahead. Yeah. More is coming. We could just kind of announce that um, the month of April Fridays at midnight is back full time for the month of April. So each and every week of April, we're going to be doing Fridays at midnight. So we're going to have a lot of different new stuff for you guys that you might not be too familiar with. And uh, that's kind of the point of this. And it's like, you know, a way for me and the Jay to watch a lot of weird stuff and bring it to your attention because these movies are definitely not going to be too mainstream. Like Boondock Saints might be one of the most mainstream things that ever shows up on Fridays at midnight because it's really, you know, it's not it's the purpose of the segment. So we're going into the well. Idea. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to show you guys 
just how varied we are in our movie watching. Uh, and this segment is perfect for that. So, but we're up against our last commercial break. Whenever we come back, we're going to wrap up the show and the Jay is going to talk some goofs. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real podcast. Step right up. Friday's at midnight here. We got all the finest women in the world. We got all the kind of craziest stuff you've ever seen. Hey, buddy, what about you? Why don't you come on into Friday's at midnight and see what the world beholds? Hey, what kind of wares do you have? What kind of place is this? This looks pretty unique. Tracy, you want to check this out? You like hot women? You like crazy people? What about murder? We got that too. Cartoon characters, stupidity, just about everything you guys want to see. Come on in. Just a small fee, if you will. Sorry, Tracy. I love all these things. I'm leaving you. You stay here. Here it is, sir. All right. Head on in. All right. Friday's at midnight, everybody. What's Real Podcast? Join us next week for one of the craziest movie segments in podcasting. Friday's at midnight. Welcome back. It is time for another What's Real special. This time, we're having a double feature all about Fridays at midnight. So this should be a lot of fun. Of course, we're going to be talking about 1987's Surf Nazis Must Die, a trauma trash classic. And of course, first up, we're going to go back to 1976 with director George A. Romero's vampire classic, Martin. Martin sedates women with a syringe full of narcotics and then slices their wrists with a razor blade so he can drink their blood. Martin, who comes to live with his uncle and cousin in the dying town of Braddock, Pennsylvania, has romantic monochrome visions of vampiric seductions and torchlit mobs, but it is impossible to tell how seriously he takes them. Uh, Martin, in my opinion, is George Romero's best film, not named Dawn of the Dead. Um, I think this this movie is absolutely brilliant. It starts stars John Amplis as Martin himself, Lincoln Mazel as Tatakuda, Christine Forrest, a.k.a. Christine Romero, as Christina, uh, with an appearance by Tom Savini as Arthur. Um, it also features Michael Gornick, uh, Romero's main uh, camera operator, as the radio talk show host. Uh, George Romero makes an appearance himself as Father Howard. And, of course, the movie stars the old town of Braddock, Pennsylvania, as its background scenery, a town that me and Jared are extremely familiar with. Um also, there are some additional ties to this movie that uh, we both have uh, because it also features none other than the Jay's mom as one of the two women being harassed in the grocery store parking lot. So that's kind of our connection to Martin anyways. Uh, John Amplis is somebody I do consider a friend. Uh, I've known John for years, really good guy, and a really, really amazing performance in this movie. Um there is the the whole bit in the movie, what, is he a vampire, is he not a vampire? Uh, George Romero himself has stated that he's not a vampire. Um, with that being said, this is probably my favorite vampire movie of all time. <laughs> um, really good movie all around. It's very subdued and interesting. It's definitely a character study. Uh, it's weird. It's uh, there's a lot of like style in this movie. That's even kind of a departure from the things that George Romero typically does in his movies. Um, I think that Martin is extremely important in the uh, you know the timeline of George Romero. Uh, you start to see the filmmaker that George Romero would become with uh, the Crazies in 1972, I believe. Um, but this is the movie where, in my opinion, George Romero essentially comes to life as a director. Uh, if it wasn't for this movie, we wouldn't have things like Dawn of the Dead, Creep Show, Day of the Dead, uh, and pretty much everything that came after that. 
Uh, it runs in at about 95 minutes. And it is a particular rough movie. Um, there are, you know, scenes depicting rape. Um, the whole syringe thing is very creepy. Um, the overall mood of the movie is a really interesting one because the character of Martin clearly is the villain, but at the same time is also kind of the main character slash hero of the story, um, who has a very, very strange home life where uh, Tatakuda and his family essentially believe that Martin is Nosferatu and he is the curse of the family. And essentially they have been assigned to watch over him and make sure that he doesn't kill. Uh, and once things like that happen, they tend to have to move him to another family's place of living uh, and kind of hide him out. And Tatakuda, when it comes to his turn, essentially tells Martin that this is the last stop. He says like any, uh, you know, if I get any inkling at all that you were preying on townspeople, I'll kill you myself. And uh, what you get is this movie where obviously Martin is terrorizing women, but is also kind of a lost, weird soul in and of himself, too. Um, and just all of it, like the music, Donald Rubenstein's soundtrack, everything comes together very perfectly. And Martin, to me, is one of the greatest horror films of all time. Um, and there's not really a whole lot like it. And plus the fact that it was shot in a town that we are very much familiar with. I went to grade school in Braddock, uh, at a school called Good Shepherd. Um, we There's been numerous reasons through the years to be in Braddock for us. And it's a place we're fairly familiar with. So We basically met in Braddock. Yeah, pretty much. You're absolutely right. Yeah, like or maybe like two minutes outside we, we of Braddock. We met in elementary school. Yep, at Ben like Fairless Elementary. Yeah. yeah, so, and that's where I met a lot of my friends uh, for the first time, guys that are still my friends to this day. So uh, the movie itself was shot in a house in Braddock, Pennsylvania that was actually Tony Buba's grandmother's house. And Tony Buba also is one of the cast members on the film and crew members, I should say. Um, and, you know, this is the movie that began the George Romero working relationship with his, his cast and crew. Um, it was the first movie that he worked on with Tom Savini. Uh, Michael Gornick would uh, become his camera operator from this point through the most influential part of his career. Um, this is where George Romero uh, essentially met his first wife, Christine Forrest. Um, and, you know, he would work with uh, the Booba family as well. Uh, Pasquale would be one of the editors that he would work with. Tony would work on uh, a bunch of his stuff, too. He's probably most remembered as being the, the sombrero biker uh, in Dawn of the Dead. Uh, but this movie is absolutely fantastic, Jay. I know that we're both fans of this one. You have, obviously have the family connection to it. But it, it's it's amazing in the way that for me, somebody who's seen the movie like an obscene amount of times, like there's always something upon rewatching that I kind of latch on to. And it's just more apparent than it was in previous viewings. And, uh, you know, it's just it's a really really amazing movie considering how low the budget is and you know the fact that it was made virtually by unknowns other than Romero himself uh, and it would be you know Savini's first you know big Romero movie and it wasn't a big movie at the time it actually did no business at the box office but it become quite the cult favorite through the years. I have to do it, hey Aunt, because I'm jumping on with the special, but your boy is pumped up for the Fridays at Midnight special with a double dose of Romero and trauma. 
let me tell you. But yeah, Martin is a goddamn classic. We, we've talked about it for years. I've always said how cool it is that two of my best friends, shouting out our good friend Runk, that also is like you, hey, Ed, he references this as uh, his favorite movie of all time, or at least one of them. And, and my mom is on screen taking part of it. You know, it's, it's just a really cool thing from the door. But as I always mention with films, the world building and Braddock in the seventies is the backdrop. And you mentioned this, but it creates the world for this film. And it just means so much to the movie. Like the atmosphere in this is just unbelievable. The, the, the seventies, the fact that the backdrop is in the seventies and this was shot in the seventies here watching it in 2023 is, is another thing to me that makes this film so interesting because, you know, you have these unique houses of the time and, you know, I'll, I'll reference this off the bat, the scene where this woman kind of piques Martin's interest, you know, she's like in yeah. the neighborhood and she, yep. he gets in, kind of in somewhat infatuated with her and he shows up at her house and he acts like he's deaf that he can't hear. Oh and, yeah. And yeah. he's kind of begging and, and the husband kind of gives him money and then Martin, Richard Rubenstein, by the way. That's Rubenstein. Yeah. yeah. And Martin is, as weird as he is and things like that, he's a pretty intelligent kid. And he ends up walking past this, this uh, hardware store and he picks up this uh, like device. The and garage the, door opener. Yeah. The long and the short of it is he's able to kind of stalk this woman. And after the husband leaves, he's able to come into her house. And his plan was to do what he typically does which is to kind of ransack a woman and hit the hit her with the syringe so that he could drink her blood and in this case he finds out and is surprised that she's actually having an affair and yep. she he walks in to, to her having sex with this man that's a great scene it's a great scene and chaos ensues but they're just running around this 70s house and, you know, going back doors. to that point with all these doors and the way that's shot and he's going up and down the house. And then the thing with the phones where she's trying to yep. call the hospital because he dabs, he gets to the point where he's able to dab the dude with the syringe. And, but it's not like a fast, fast acting. He has kind, to get more liquid. than once. Yeah. He has he, to, he's just not going down. Yeah. So the, the dude's not going down, but eventually he gets him again. So you have the dude like stalking Martin, trying to find Martin, but he's also losing consciousness. It's, it's just, it's just unbelievable. But yeah, that's, that's kind of a good place for me to start. Hey, Ed, that's like a, an early highlight. And, and that also exemplifies what I'm talking about for the overall atmosphere and just some of these scenes and shots in these old seventies houses and in the old Braddock seventies neighborhood. And dude, it's pretty weird for me watching Martin for a myriad of reasons too. So just to give you guys a little background who don't know this, uh, Braddock, Pennsylvania is a depressed mill town. And when Martin was made, it was right at the tail end of the mills before they kind of shut things down and the whole industry changed and a lot of people in the area would lose their jobs. Um, and Braddock would really go from like a normal town to like a really bad area in a matter of a couple decades. Uh, because of that. And also, for those of you who are interested in movies who might not realize it, Braddock, Pennsylvania is also the same place where they shot a lot of the stuff for Deer Hunter. So, they're, they're, you know, you might recognize that it's kind of the same type of place. And growing up around the area and being in Braddock and stuff like that, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that just reminds me of my childhood as well. Um, 
you know, it's a familiar area. It's, you know, the people in the movie look like people I knew. Um, kind of it's very similar to my involvement with Night of Living Dead and even Dawn of the Dead growing up. So, uh, but the thing is, Martin is, there's a lot of weirdness about this movie. And I mean that in a good way. Like, it's a very off-kilter film. Um, it's not atypical at all. Um, there's very little influence from universal monsters and things like that. There might be a little hammer influence in there, uh, stuff like that in like the, uh, you know, like the black and white scenes and and stuff like that. But, you know, it's a pretty straightforward movie and it's amazing because the whole thing about the movie is like, there is no magic kind of like talking about vampires. Like they're not real. It's not a real thing. Um, and then the movie juxtaposes that with the very realistic and, and kind of nasty attack scenes that we see through the movie. Um, it's an interesting dichotomy. I think that the movie, it gives the movie like a personality of its own because of that. And it's something that's memorable, memorable because of that. Um, the movie doesn't really try to fool you with supernatural elements or anything like that. It's a, it's a character study. Um, and it's, it, 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 like I said, it's, there's some mean and ugly scenes in the movie, but then it's also like, you know, they show you scenes of like Martin is like a, just like a confused young man. Um, and John Amplis does a really get great job in the role of Martin too, because he's very unassuming and non-threatening. And, you know, that's something we've seen, you know, established in horror films time and time again is like, you know, the nice guy isn't always the good guy or, you know, things like that. So that adds another layer to it as well. And then there's also the, they they work in the whole depressed mining town thing with the Savini character of Arthur because he's constantly complaining about like wanting to move to find better work and there's no jobs around here and like that kind of stuff. And it's also mixed in too with something that's pretty typical, uh, at least of our growing up in Pittsburgh, the Jay, like the ethnic family. You know what I mean? Right. Like we're, like you might go to visit a friend of yours or something that you go to school with and like his grandmother's there and like she's very like Italian or Slovak or, Polish, or, yeah, or, right. or doesn't speak English very well or things like that. So like that type of family environment was something that was pretty common, uh, you know, upon our childhood and stuff. And that's obviously on display here, uh, even though it's in the Booba household. Like one of the things that cracks me up about this movie, The Jam, personally, is if you pay attention in Martin's house, there's like that holographic picture of Jesus. Yeah. And my grandmother had the same thing when I was a kid. It's yeah. the same exact one. And yeah. what they would do is like on Palm Sunday, when they get the palm, they would come home and like put it in the picture. Like that yeah. was a common fucking thing growing up. So, you know, it's very, the environment's very familiar. The story's very familiar, uh, even though it is just a lot of utter weirdness and everything. But the performances, the way it looks and everything, it's just, it's really a phenomenal movie in my opinion. Like there's very few things I've ever seen that are quite like it. And I think that's the stuff that really makes it stand the test of time. I wanted to dig into kind of some of the commentary you were making about the the supernatural aspect versus, you know, the, the whole gimmick of, of the film as, as the backbone with the whole Nosferatu kind of thing, where Romero wrote the script for Martin based on literary monsters and their orientation and culture. So discussing this, he said, Martin is designed so that all those supernatural monsters that are part of our literary tradition are, in essence, expurgations of ourselves. They are beasts we've created in order to exercise the monster from within us. I tried to show in Martin that you can't just slice off this evil part of ourselves and throw it away. 
It's a permanent part of us and we'd better try and understand it. And, and that was really, you know, cool to hear just straight from the man himself, which goes into, as you were talking about with Amplis, originally the character of Martin was initially an older man and an actual vampire. Romero saw Amplis in a Pittsburgh production of Philemon, and he decided to rewrite the part to suit Amplis and cast him in the role. So that's a pretty good tidbit too, Hey Ed, where initially, you know, it's, it's going to be a vampire. And then he's like, Oh, we could play with this and make this much more interesting as a character study to make it more realistic. And he's not a vampire. It's just kind of in his head, which brings up another thing I wanted to mention, which of course is, the black and white sequences, which are Martin's fantasy and dream sequences. They're great. Those, those are what you were talking about that have that hammer kind of yep. feel. Even you know, it's black and white. Black it's and white. Like a, a lot old, of, like lot of fog, cloaks. Yep. Uh, there's kind of like the the, the the torch scene where like the, the townsfolk are chasing him as a vampire of the past with the torches and everything. And, and those Dude, scenes it, really help the film. A lot of that stuff kind of reminds me of Hammer's Wolfman. Right. Oliver Reed. Yep. Like that's exactly where I think a lot of that stuff comes right out of. Um, but dude, it's it's a really like it's I know that I keep kind of repeating myself on this, but there's so many little nuances to this that make it like an interesting film because it kind of feels like even talking about it now, it kind of feels like multiple films in one. And yeah. dude, the one thing that is absolutely amazing about this movie is and I think it's kind of it's weird because when you really look over his career, it's something that he was good at. He does something at the beginning of his movies that really sucks you in. And the beginning of Martin, he's on a train and he essentially attacks a woman, kills her, rapes her, and, and drinks her blood. And it's an ugly way to start the movie. And then you get that whole opening sequence where he meets Tatakuda at the train station. Yeah, with the music, like you and mentioned. That's when the, and they're just walking through Braddock and they show you like the junkyard and kind of like how the depressed it. man, very few movies set the table for you like that does. Yeah, like, great I shots. think it's it's really, really well done. Just the composition of the shots and like I guarantee you that if I ever make a movie, there's going to be something in it that is definitely 100% inspired by that opening. <laughs> you know what I did? <laughs> there's some yeah. of my own shots from angles, you know, the big blue building. That's in yep. my, my film, The Unsung. So, yeah, for sure. The the, the other big part that, that was worth mentioning, hey, Ed, that's really cool. It, it helps everything kind of move along. Because it's like a kind of side narrative it, it is what it sets up, is how Martin seeks advice from a local disc jockey who dubs him The Count. And, and, and he becomes really popular. Yeah, and he becomes really popular on the, the radio. Yep. And it's – I see, I like the stuff that they do in the movie to kind of give Martin his personality – like exactly. that's one part like he, yeah. he's kind of like he likes talking to the radio guy and then he's also into like magic tricks and then they show him like in the adult bookstore so like there's like he's one part kid one part like pervy kind of adult man and then he might be like he might have like a mental condition too because like he kind of seems like he believes that he's hundreds of years old like his family tells him and it's like the Christine Forrest character is supposed to be us as the viewer. Right. Like, that's pretty abundant. Like, she's like, you're fine. This fucking family's crazy. Like, but like, you're seeing everything play out. And it's like, she's wrong too. Like, there's something wrong with him. And just like the very, uh, 
like subdued cast. Like it's, there's not a big cast for this one. Um, you know, a lot of the scenes, like even Martin kind of like wandering the streets and shit like that. There's like a sadness to the character too, which obviously is there to draw sympathy and it works really well. And dude, like that's the kind of stuff that when I see in the movie, just like what you said about how he's originally supposed to be an older guy and things like it wouldn't have worked. It would have been a massive mistake for him to make the movie like that. So like the way that it ended up being was like a perfect storm. And it's crazy because the movie just came and went. It did virtually no business at all. It was poorly distributed. But like, again, it's found audiences for the better part of 30 years. And it's kind of weird, too, because to me, like I said, it's Romero's best work except for Dawn of the Dead. But it's somehow, to me, still one of his more elusive films. Like, it does not have the popularity that the zombie films do. Or even something like The Crazies, which garnered a Hollywood remake. Martin has never gotten that kind of attention because I don't think that people would understand how to try and even remake it if they wanted to because it's you're never you're never going to be able to make this movie the way that they made it. It's never going to turn out this way again. It's also a product of the time. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's a time capsule. Yeah, that's great points, hey, Ed. Uh, another thing I just wanted to mention about the character and build up, you made me think of it with like the kind of pervy aspect of Martin where you know he explains to one of the characters that he's never had sex when a, a woman's been awake, you know, because he does his thing with yep. the, the syringe. And it gets to a point where he has this relationship with Mrs. Santini, who's like a local neighbor who's into him, like is into like his boyish nature and things like that and, and definitely wants to fuck him. So it gets to a point towards the uh, last act of the film where Martin goes to her house and he's like, he just straight up tells her like, he's like, I know you want to have sex with me. And I never really did it before, but I want to do it with you. So they begin this full-fledged affair, and she basically becomes his friend. And this yep. kind of lessens his appetite for blood at that point in the film, which is – it's really cool how they tug the strings for for that, you know? Oh, yeah. For his hunger. Because like he talks about as the count on the radio show where he starts getting shaky again. And then that's yeah. when he feels like he's going to need blood and things like that. And and of course, this this leads to, as the Jay always mentions, the climax to he's just completely worried about experiencing withdrawal. Uh, so he goes on like a feeding binge in the city and attacks the derelicts, narrowly escaping the police. And then comes There's back to Braddock. Scene that's, yeah, that's great a really shootout scene. Too. It's, that's, dude, it's bonkers. It yeah. kind of reminds me of that scene. It just because I know more people have probably seen this, but like the scene in Boogie Nights wherever the donut store gets robbed and yep. like a bunch of people get shot at this. It's like he's standing around and like all these fucking people Chaos. are dead and it has nothing to do with him. He was just there. Yeah. And the Tony Buba is actually one that he gets shot in the forehead as the drug yep. dealer. And uh, Tony Buba is actually my mom's connection to the film. She went to college with Tony Buba. So that's how she got uh, a small little part in it. And, uh, but yeah, that, that scene's all crazy. And the, the one cop falls forward on the, the car horn. So yep. like the car horns going off for like ever. And, you, you know, you see these cool shots of Martin and he narrowly and dude, escapes. One thing that I really like about that scene, too, is like how you mentioned about the car horn and like how loud it is and everything. It's so fucking brutal in this movie because the whole movie's very quiet. Yeah, it's a very a subdued point. movie. So like when that shit happens, it's like blaring in your ear and like it's very noticeable at that point in the movie. Yeah. And then as we say, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, this movie from 72. <laughs> um, but the 
Miss Santina that he was having the affair with ends up committing suicide. So it's this huge ironic ending with playing with the Nosferatu as, as we keep saying that aesthetic where Martin didn't kill her. She actually did commit suicide, but Cuda learns about Miss Santini's death, believes Martin to be her killer. And of course, you know, leads into the, the final few scenes where we essentially see Tata just go into Martin's room at night and literally put a stake into his chest. And it is such a jarring scene because you're not going to see it coming. Like you're not going to know when it's going to happen in the movie. And when it does, it's like, boom, boom, doom, done credits. That's the end. He buries them in a backyard flower bed and the radio callers inquire and speculate about the count and Cuda places the small crucifix atop Martin's grave. Yeah. It's just what a movie. Amazing. It's like, it's really something like, it's so multi-layered. It's it's like the character study aspect of it's really good. Uh, Romero putting some style in the movie is interesting. It's really an achievement for the the amount of money it was made for. Um, that like what they were able to pull off with this. And dude, this is one too. Like I know it's obviously a movie from the seventies, but like the general themes and what they do in it, and it like it it still holds up as like something really really interesting and fantastic yeah and it did have a bit of an impact as as kind of a cult thing over the years as wikipedia mentions in the early 2010s timeout conducted a poll with several authors directors actors and critics who had worked within the horror genre they were asked to vote for their top horror films martin ended up placing in the top 100 it was 87 so there is respect for it out there. Uh, we, we talked about this on the show in the past when the news was breaking. We actually have a connection, know a little bit uh, about the guy that was involved in finding this. In October of 21, a 16 millimeter print of the black and white director's cut, previously believed to be lost, was located and will undergo restoration as we speak, hey, Ed, which is a really cool thing too. Well, here's the thing. I don't know if that's the case. Because my understanding is Richard Rubenstein has absolutely no interest in putting money into it. It was offered to him and he just declined. Uh, It went up on an auction site and was purchased by a private collector. And nobody knows exactly who it is. But with some things that I've heard and know through the grapevine, I'm not going to get into more detail than that. It is very, 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 very possible that it was purchased by Quentin Tarantino. Because uh, he has a bunch of uh, 35 millimeters and stuff, and they show them at the New Beverly Theater in, in California. And uh, my understanding, too, is that whoever bought them also reached out to the George A. Romero Foundation to let them know that they have it. So, like, it's the kind of thing that if they do want access to it or something like that, they'll most likely be given uh, said access. There also could be potential, and this is just me, that, uh, and I thought that it's possible that Greg Nicotero uh, was the guy that purchased it as well so it wouldn't surprise me if it was either or but it is not lost it is not going to be restored as of now but that can change you know on the on the drop of a dime and uh, I, I think it'd be a shame if it never sees the light of day because i would absolutely love to see this i don't care if it's terrible or like i just want to see all the footage that they absolutely have for this because romero talked about the original cut of it and how long it was so it's been kind of a thing of legend that i've heard for a really long time there's a huge Romero guy. That's something that I'd, I would love to fucking check that out. That would be awesome. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on it. So 
I think that's a pretty appropriate breakdown of George A. Romero's Martin here on our first uh, portion of the Fridays at Midnight special. Uh, we are going to take a quick commercial break. And whenever we come back, we are going to actually talk about Surf Nazis Must Die. But before we do that, the J, hit us with a tagline for Martin. So the tagline for Martin, he could be the boy next door. Hey, Ed, the blood lover, a new nightmare from George A. Romero, the director of Night of the Living Dead. There you go. So that was from 1976, George A. Romero's Martin. So again, we are going to take a quick commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to head back to 1987 for Peter George's trash classic, Surf Nazis Must Die. So stay tuned for that and much more right here on the What's Real Podcast. This is Ed from the What's Real Podcast for Physically Fit with Kurt Angle. At Physically Fit, we are committed to providing our customers with the highest quality, better for you protein snack nutrition the entire family will enjoy. In a time when product quality seems to be compromised by price, we are determined to be unique and offer different offerings, superior ingredients, great taste, texture, and quality in every bag. We strive to inspire everyone on some level and share values of faith, family, respect, and excellence daily. Our goal is to be a small part of your life, personal growth, health, and happiness. We consider each customer to be part of our growing physically fit family and encourage all to live life to its fullest. Set new goals daily to better yourself physically, financially, emotionally, and spiritually. Don't compromise your values and always be kind and respectful to others. Our motto is healthy people, healthy planet, because we believe that providing great tasting nutrition makes for a healthier you, and a healthier you makes for a healthier planet. Strive for a better tomorrow and live physically fit. Go to physicallyfit.com today. And we're back, and I hope you guys enjoyed that Fridays at Midnight Best of Season I feel four sticky, segment. Man. I feel really sticky. Yeah, it's, 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 it got nasty in here. It really did. Uh, but this is something, our next segment here is something that I know that we're both very proud of. Uh, every February on the What's Real podcast, we take an entire month and we devote it to something. Uh, and it's it's been film related uh, the first three years that we did it. The very first year we did it uh, was all centered around Bruce Lee, who's such a big inspiration to me and the Jay here on the show. And we talked about some of his best movies and it all correlated with a box set that came out by Criterion Collection. Uh, also, we did... Uh, the next year after that, we did Melvin Van Peebles, which again, correlated with a box set that was out there about some of his more interesting works. Uh, and this year we didn't go for an actor, so to speak. We went for a movie series and it's really one of the best movie series of all time. Uh, it's based off a manga. It's the Lone Wolf and Cub series, uh, which some people might know is Shogun Assassin, which was a more truncated uh, kind of best of version of that movie that came out for American audiences in 1980. Um, but this past February, we we designated a whole month uh, to this entire series, the Lone Wolf and Cub series. So, And what we did was it ended up being called The Month of the Samurai. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. And it was really, it's honestly, the J for me, it's one of my favorite things we've done on the podcast in season four overall. This was so awesome. And I, I had Lone Wolf and Cub, the Criterion Collection, 
in my collection for quite some time. So when we brought this up, I'm like, this is perfect because this is going to get me to really buckle down and just tear into this amazing collection. The preservation of the films, as always, top notch with Criterion. You know, these 4K and Blu-rays and stuff is just unbelievable as far as just the look off the bat of these classic films. And then we even delved into all the special features and the extras and everything else. We, we, we talk about it like we did this with Bruce Lee, with Melvin, and then with The Month of the Samurai, where then we, we get through all the movies and all the cool stuff. And then the last kind of wrap up segment is kind of going through all the behind the scenes and all the commentaries and different thing. And it seems like that's like a really great culmination of these full months that we give these very important topics. And that was the case with this was, was going through everything that we went through that is on as extras and special features and, and featurettes in the Criterion collection. So what a blast to cover an amazing collection of such a classic, awesome film series. Yeah, I couldn't put that any better myself. It was an absolute blast. And now it is time to relive that with us. See how much fun we had with this next segment. This is the best of season four, and this is specifically the month of the samurai, right here on the What's Real Podcast. And we're back, and it is the last time here for the Month of the Samurai, our journey through the six films of the Lone Wolf and Cub series. Uh, This week, we're going to talk White Heaven and Hell from 1974, directed by Yoshiyuki Kuroda. Um, In the sixth and final film of the Lone Wolf and Cub series, the final conflict between Ogami Ito and the Yagyu clan is carried out. And that's pretty much what this one is. Um, It's kind of a long, dramatic buildup of a film. But the thing is, is the last portion of the movie pays off like a motherfucker. Because once they get in the snow, this movie kicks into high gear. Um, But dude, the thing is, and it's really weird, it would seem like this movie would be really, really disappointing because of the pacing and how like the first you know almost half of the movie is pretty subdued the movie's only 83 minutes um but you realize at least i did um watching this one that they're kind of just giving you some more time with the characters because they know it's all coming to an end um doing simple things not just fucking fighting and shit like that and it's also another continuation, just like every one since the first one, where uh, Daigoro, uh, the son, uh, is you know continuing his growth into a person through this, and you know, and you kind of realize too, and with this one, that in a way, and there are going to be some spoilers here because we do have to talk about this stuff, but as we say, it's from '74. Yeah, it's from 1974, guys. <laughs> um, but like you've already been you're kind of given the impression that like as far as Agami Ito like he's already died like he might be fighting the fights and you know trying to take care of his son and everything but like his soul is practically dead at this point um even though the you know the heart of the samurai never dies kind of a thing um it's very subdued and sad in a way um 
it's not really tragic or anything like that. You they, they do try and scare you a couple times, but at this point, you kind of got to know that like they're not gonna die. You know what I mean? It's just there's no conceivable. Like they've already gone this far, and frankly, this is kind of the disappointing part of the movie for me is that the foes in this one don't stack up very well. They're cool in the snow scenes at the end, but like everybody he faces along the way in this movie is kind of like, you know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, they they were cool characters, but like you said, they just didn't stack up as far as being a threat. Like, you know, it goes to the the leader of the Yagu. He goes to get the the son, his bastard son, because Ito killed all his sons. And, yep. and daughter so he's the last heir and he was the one that he had with his mistress and he like raised himself in the mountains you know he was banished and all that so that was yep. that was cool you know but but yeah as far as being a threat goes i mean he did the thing that was a cool scene you know just to start talking about some of my highlights he had where he tracks down ito and he gives him that ultimatum like he tells him how they're putting out word throughout the entire land that he's the the number one threat you know, so like all the yep. other leaders and shoguns are going to be after him and everything. So he said, I will do you one favor. I'll give you my boat. And if you accept that, just know that I'll, you know, basically I'll give you a head start, but then I have to come at you too once they give the official message out and everything. Yep. And, and Ito sees right through him, you know, because he, he know, he's like, you, you, you wouldn't have made it up here as a samurai the way you made it up here. So he yep. called him out right away. And he's like, that's impressive that you saw through me. And he he takes his mask off and unveils himself and stuff. But yeah, that was one of my first standout scenes. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's cool. Like at this point, as opposed to like the other movies where they're kind of like people have been warned about him or they kind of heard the legend. Like at this point, everybody knows that Agami Ito is no joke. They got to like kind of approach him differently and try and do th- like coming at him headstrong. Like, let's just send all the troops in or just going to get all the troops killed. Um, so like everybody at this point is trying to approach him with, with kid gloves, so to speak. Um, and and the, the only thing that, and this is one of the bad things I could say about this movie. Um, you're kind of confused about Ito's motivations at this point. Like all the other movies, it's pretty abundantly clear what's going on and what's driving him. This one, it's like a little bit more murky, um, which isn't the biggest deal. But you think something like a series like this with so much fucking philosophy behind it would have had something, you know, even if it's just for his son to continue on. But like they didn't even really get into that a whole lot until like a scene towards the end where you think his son's potentially dead. Especially regarding that this is the climax the the six, exactly. six of six film like that's I, I mentioned to you off air just a little we did talk about this that I, I it definitely wasn't exactly what I was expecting but yep. these are also good in their own ways that didn't deter anything or how I felt about the series at all and, and we'll get into the climax and how everything wraps up however it, it wasn't what I was expecting the the sixth and final film what was exactly going to be you know make up you know yeah, I mean, you do the with the way that this one kind of unfolds, you do kind of expect the finale to be like grandiose as fuck. You know what I mean? Like he kills 700 fucking people and, you know, that he, he grabs his son and carries him out of the fucking bloody war, like that kind of shit. Uh, but that's not exactly how they go. 
Uh, you do get that one really fucking awesome scene whenever he's getting chased by all these fucking ninjas on skis at the end. And like they show him sword fighting essentially. And then everything just comes to a fucking stopping halt. And he's just standing in the middle of like a shitload of dead ninjas in the snow. Yeah, I, I, so I actually like, counted them on the wide shot. There was over 30. I think there was like 30. Really? Yeah. That's cool. That's cool as shit that you did that. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. But like, yeah, they're just like, and it's, it's such a cool visual because it's just bodies and blood everywhere in the super white snow with him just standing above all of them. Um, and that to me is probably the last really, really cool shot you get of the movie in the series. Um, it, it is kind of anticlimactic to a way, you know what I mean? Cause it's, you don't feel like if there's a, a certifiable challenge, he doesn't necessarily defeat the evil really either. It's yeah, kind of like leave a it open fight. Ended. Yeah. They, it's like a fight for another day. It's, it's, you know, it comes out of a manga, but which is very similar to comics. And that's a total comic book thing to do is to leave it open. But it's just been kind of unfortunate that up to this point, nobody has made another film. You know what I mean? That is specifically tied to the series. There's been like unauthorized stuff, but not an actual Toho seventh film. Yeah, we, we had um, no closure. No. And I mean, and we talked about this off air too. I understand in certain folklore and stuff like that, it's very difficult to give that kind of closure. And I kind of, you know, brought it up to the point of being like, you know, hey, you're not going to get closure with Superman either. It's just one of those things. Like, it's a very difficult character to do that with, uh, especially with the sun and everything else, too. So, um, but still, nonetheless, really, really cool movie. Um, I definitely liked it. It's probably the second worst one in the series to me, but I actually uh, enjoyed the movie for what it was, and I still had a really, really good time with it overall. Yeah, there's there's always so many good highlights. You know, there there was the part where you know I was mentioning you know before he goes after the bastard son, the the last child of his other than the bastard was was his daughter, and she was like the top assassin, you know, going pretty much so to speak, and had that trick with the daggers. And she would always do this trick where she would, you know, basically throw these guys off with throwing these daggers at them. And the, the one dagger she would throw in the air and like land on their head. <laughs> and you would just see the dagger go in the top of their head and then the blood pour. And of course the confrontation with Lone Wolf, he saw through her, her dagger trick, you know, her dad dagger kind of magic trick, you know, and was able to take her out. Uh, but that was all a cool thing. That was like in that field, and stuff so and, that, and that's yeah. the other thing you know bringing that up hey i just got to mention still the atmosphere cinematography the look of the film and everything you know still went right with kind of the visual poetry if you will of the series it that still went right hand in hand with uh, the other entries uh, so that worked out and, and like we've been mentioning the whole climax takes place on you know basically a, a, a mountainside you know ski slope with, with all the guys on skis like you were saying and of course the baby carts on skis as well so uh ito's going you down know, the hill with with the sun and everything with the guys next to him and, and that, that was pretty cool the one thing that it that's kind of a complaint that i've had about this one and it reminded me rewatching it again um it was cool how through the series they've introduced you know firepower and guns and in this one i kind of felt like they overdid it 
there's like more of that than there is swordplay to a degree. And that was kind of disappointing to me, considering that this is a fucking samurai series. Um, but they did manage, though, to do some cool shit with it, even when they busted out the baby cart machine guns, where he's just <laughs> literally a- lopping dudes off a mountaintop, like that are coming at him on skis. Like, it, it's pretty fucking funny, nonetheless. There was, there was the other part they used the, a gimmick from one of the past films, the, the one that we thought was really cool with the, uh, the three assassins that each had like the, the gimmicks, like they had the Wolverine yep. claws and they were sticking them in the sand of the guys that were in there because they knew they were there. And he shoots the baby cart guns at these walls and the walls start bleeding. And all these yep. dudes that were hiding to try to jump out and uh, ransack them just started falling out of the side of the wall. That was that was cool with the gun. But I, I, I get what you're saying with, with like the sword play because uh, that was the thing. There was definitely a lot of slower parts in this one too. Uh, and, and they kind of got away with, I mean, there's, there's aspects of it to bring it back, but they kind of got away with the uh, father-son bond that we've been talking about. It wasn't as well, do, prominent really until like the end and everything. Yet the one thing about this movie too is, and I, I it kind of feels like a misstep. It doesn't ruin the movie, but it's, it's definitely, in my opinion, a misstep. And that is, this movie is probably the darkest entry into the series. And they're, they completely deviate from any type of humor like we've seen in the previous Good five point. movies. Like there's always little pieces of humor, stuff with his son and things like that. They don't even attempt that shit in this one, uh, which is kind of weird because I remember thinking the first time I saw this um, with that darker tone, like throughout the movie, I'm like, someone's going to die. And like, and they don't. And I'm like, well, that kind of feels like a waste then, you know, like make a movie so dark and then finish it that way. Right. So, uh, but I don't know. I mean, I still think that this is uh, a decent way of finishing off the series. It's not perfect by any stretch of the means, but uh, nonetheless, it's still a pretty good movie overall. And, and I definitely enjoyed this one. Uh, anything else you'd like to add for this one, the Jay? I just got to say, like I said, I think, and I mentioned this a lot. I think my expectations were too high from my personal perspective as well, just because well, I the five, this. Five, five movies before that are all fucking pretty fantastic. Yeah, so it, it did have a lot to live up to. And I, like you said, at the bottom, you know, end of the day, I still enjoyed it. It's not like they completely flubbed the, the climax or anything. There's always different ways you can go creatively, but I, I liked it. I mean, it was, you know, really cool to, to have him kill 30 some dudes. Cause that, that's one thing I was thinking in this. And I know people have used the, the reference to Rambo before, but like everybody will bring up, you know, as big horror fans, like, you know, your Jason's and Freddy's and, and Michael Myers and how many people they kill. And I'm like, dude, Rambo and Lone Wolf and Cub probably have the the top kill counts. <laughs> oh, dude, like, if and, you add and, them up. It, you're right. And the, you actually reminded me of something that I, I forgot to bring up on here. But uh, the director, uh, Yoshiyuki Kuroda, um, has a pretty... Not super extensive, but a fairly extensive uh, history in in Japanese horror. So, like, you can kind of see that influence on the movie just with it being darker and things like that. He also made a a really cool movie. uh, It's called The Invisible Swordsman um, that I really like. And I haven't seen that in a really long time. But uh, it's kind of an odd choice for him to do something like this. But I don't think... Like, put it this way, I don't think any of the shortcomings of the movie have to do with it visually. I thought no. the movie looked great. Yeah, the film looked great. And, and this also, speaking of kills, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, just like ha- the, the director having some horror experience like kept my thoughts there. Best kill maybe in a series, and that's saying a lot, 
when they're on the mountainside and that dude jumps at him and he cuts him in half. And you just see his the bottom half of his torso. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was some Mortal like, Kombat shit before dude, Mortal Kombat. Kinda, I, that's another thing too that kind of reminds me of that earlier scene uh, in the series, wherever that ninja, like that, you know, the, the woman's like jump to the garden. And yeah, the yeah, six exactly. Women, and they're just lopping his body parts. That was like, that was definitely they, another highlight. They don't overdo that, so like when they do it, yeah, it, it's impactful. You're, it, you're you're absolutely right about that kill in this one too, because it's like I was. That's what I thought of in my mind, and I'm like, let's see if that's the one that he says, and that's it. It's the exact one you went for, <laughs> yeah, and it's that, and it's really quick, out. and it's really simple. But like that visual of just like in the snow. That's what I was gonna say. Snow, the snow with like the this, blood. That's what that's what uh, played. I think that's what they were going for. Is like we're gonna end this, you know, with all the blood we have in in a snow environment. Like to really, dude, it would be. You know what I mean? Like if you're if you were making a horror movie or any kind of a violent, gory movie at all, and you were like, "Fuck, we need to find a good environment for like this bloody scene," and it's like the snow. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, it's it's the old wrestling thing. Like Jim Cornette used to always say this: like if you knew you were getting color, which means you were gonna bleed, what color suit would you wear? White. Exactly, because it's gonna look fucking like insane. Yeah, (laughs) it stands out. So, but yeah, that's that that's the the idea. So. Uh, they were able to pull a lot of that stuff off. So as we do here on the J, uh, on the show, the J five star rating scale, what are you giving white heaven and hell? I'm going to stick with a solid three and a half for white heaven and hell. Agreed. That's what I would give it to. So that is the conclusion here to the lone wolf and cub series. Um, so I, you know, I'm checking back in on you. I did this about halfway through the J. So like this series, man, like what, what did you think? Did it, did it surpass your expectations? Did it live up to them? Did it fall short? How did you feel about sitting through all these movies here? It did, honestly. Hey, it surpassed my expectations. And I expected a lot. But, I, you know, because I've, again, with being a Kurosawa fan, and I said I kept comparing it just for my other samurai watching, classic samurai kind of stuff, you know, with Seven Samurai and, and Kurosawa films. So the, these were a lot different in the way that, like like we first started mentioning, they have that exploitive kind of feel to them. And and again, being a huge fan of Quentin Tarantino, I could see why he was so influenced and why he wanted to do Kill Bill, you know, and have have his take and an homage to to Lone Wolf and Cub. So so yeah, I, I love this. This is uh going right in there with so many of my favorite series, man. I, I was mentioning I'm definitely gonna uh, give it some time, but I'll relive this again. And and while we're at it. Because we were telling everybody, if you're interested in this series, if you're listening and haven't seen it yet, have some extra cash. I highly recommend the Lone Wolf and Cub set from Criterion. Uh, that's what we use yep. to do our, our Month of the Samurai. And some of the things that, that we weren't able to get to, uh, both of us have talked about this and, and we've both seen it. It's been some time for me. I'm definitely going to pop this in. I, w- I was telling you, hey, Ed, that the fact that I, I was trying to squeeze it in, but I'm like, I'm actually glad I didn't get it in. And that was Shogun Assassin. Uh, again, we've talked about it, but just if you, if you missed it, if you're listening, Shogun Assassin, Assassin is just basically a mismatch that was made for grindhouse theaters and drive-ins of the entire six Lone Wolf and Cub films. Uh, but it's it's a really cool version of it to to see it like in that kind of format with everything kind of mismatched together, all all six of the movies, you know, still with the the soundtrack and everything, and, and that might even be more palpable. For, for certain filmgoers, you know, just to see the the kind of mismatch version of it as opposed to watching all six films. 
And absolutely. And I think that a lot of people out there who might not be familiar with these, but are familiar example uh, is with the, the Jizza's Liquid Swords album. Uh, obviously, Jizza from the Wu-Tang Clan. If you guys are familiar with that album, you've already heard a lot of audio and stuff from Shogun Assassin. Um, because that's kind of like the concept album, the Liquid Swords, like built around that kind of stuff. So that's probably the most famous uh, or the most commonplace type thing for people to, to notice this stuff from. Um, but yeah, Shogun Assassin is essentially a mixtape of the Lone Wolf and Cub movies. Uh, it's pretty quick and easy, but it's also like action packed because they put all the like best fight scenes yeah, like and shit together. Um, so that's pretty cool as well. Um, obviously, these this series is based off a of Japanese manga, which is available. So if you guys do want to check that out, you could probably get copies of it on Amazon. It's been in print since the 1960s. Um, you know, there it's worth it too because, like, if you're like you, we've been kind of talking about this throughout. But like, if you're a fan of movies in general, um, you can watch these. And like you'll start pick like this is shit that Tarantino did. This is stuff that like certain westerns did. This stuff is you know like they this series has influenced a lot of movies and not just shit within the genres. Like it goes outside of the genres. That's how well known these are. Like pretty well established directors and stuff are probably going to be familiar with the series and tend to put their own stamp on things and put them in their own movie. So. um you know, it's really an impressive series. It's it's a lot of fun. Uh, also, too, if you guys aren't big movie collectors or anything like that, the movies are available, too, on HBO Max. Um, I believe they're all on there at the moment. They were the last time I checked, which was, you know, about halfway through the month. So if you guys do have HBO Max, uh, you can check these out at no additional cost, obviously. And uh, highly worth it, man. I mean, I, there's not too many people out there uh, that I wouldn't recommend this to. I think a lot of people... Uh, would get some good out of it one way or another because there's just so many stories and different things going on here that I think it's enjoyable on a bunch of different levels where, you know, typical samurai flicks and kung fu stuff. And, and dude, like even like, you know, like you were saying, Kurosawa, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, but it's not exactly palatable to, you know, like a 17-year-old kid or something Exactly, like that. yeah, these are definitely you know, more accessible. Seven Samurai is a four-hour movie, basically, <laughs> yeah. so... These yeah. are a lot easier to sit through and things like that. And it, it might be more accessible to a lot of people too. But uh, but that's not a, a discount of anything that these movies do. They're fucking fantastic. It's an absolutely great series. And the J, I, you know, we don't do this too much here on the podcast, but let's pat ourselves on the back for three consecutive years where I think we've done a really good job uh, with what we do in February. Like I said, the first year was uh, the month of the dragon with... Uh, Bruce Lee, and then we did the month of Melvin, all about Melvin Van Peebles. And the third year, we decided to do the year of the samurai, all about the Lone Wolf and Cub series. So I'd, I'd say we're we're three for three, man. We're batting a thousand so far. I agree. We'll keep it up the tradition into season four, and it's those deep dives. Hey Ed, it's the thousand leagues, a ten thousand leagues under the sea. We we deep dive into these special months and. I think it's so worth it because we pick things that that really deserve to be put into a spotlight and, and really, you know, multi-layered kind of subjects that we can really dig into, which is awesome. And speaking of which, to live uh, fact check on the show, hey Ed, because I had mentioned uh, talking about Shogun Assassin that it was like the mismatch of all the Lone Wolf and Cub films, but it's actually a 1980 English dubbed re-edit of the first two. 
Lone Wolf and Cub films. So I wanted to throw that out there. And uh, I thought there was more shit from the other ones in it, actually, but I guess not. Yeah. <laughs> and and so just to round out the Criterion collection, uh, this is stuff that I'll be digging into uh, in the, the near future. But they have a new interview with the writer of the Lone Wolf and Cub manga series and screenwriter on five of the films. They have a 2005 documentary about the making of the series, an interview in which uh, the writers discusses and demonstrates the real, uh, I guess it's a, I'm sorry, it's a sword master, demonstrates the real sword techniques that inspired the ones depicted in the manga and films. Uh, that That's really cool. Hey, Ed, we'll have to check oh, yeah, I'd out. like to see that. Yeah, yeah I didn't watch that. There's so an interview cool. with biographer Natsawa about Masimi, the director of four of the six films, a silent documentary from 1937, which is really cool about the making of samurai swords with an optional new ambient score by Ryan Francis. Trailers, and uh, as I'm sure you saw, had which is a really cool part of this collection, uh, and specifically the Criterion set, a booklet featuring an essay and film synopsis by Japanese pop culture critic Patrick Macias. So, you know, you get a And I've read that. It's that's pretty good. Yeah. Like it's that's really good shit in there for sure. Awesome collection, um, awesome experience, yeah. and I'm I'm kind of tearing up. Hey Ed, I'm gonna miss the the guys, Lone Wolf and Cub, but it was a great journey here on the What's Real podcast, and it's fucking enlightening. It's an amazing film adventure, and like I said, it's gonna be in my rotation for being in every uh, so often. You know, every few years, I'll, I'll pop these in, no, no doubt. And dude, I don't know if you know this or realize this, right? But like, okay, we're three for three in February here on the podcast as far as doing these special months. And I don't know if people listening at home understand like how much pressure that like it. Thank God we don't have to do this until next February because it's not easy coming up with these. And and another thing, too, and I don't know if you've even realized this, but like when we do these, this is not influenced by anything else. There's not any other podcast talking about what we're talking about at the same time we're talking about it. We didn't just see it wasn't like a popular thing that like we just saw on Netflix and we're like, let's do that. And like this is totally us really trying to hit the, the, the drawing board and come up with something that we can sink our teeth into for an entire month where we feel it would be good podcasting for you guys, something that people would want to listen to and and get enjoyment out of, but also while not picking things that everybody knows about and has already seen everything from, like we're trying to like toe that middle ground and it's very difficult. So I really do hope you guys enjoy this in February because we really do end up enjoying doing this, even though it can be difficult. Um, But it's been a lot of fun and it's, you know, like I think I said this last year, whenever we did this, this is something that I look forward to, and it's one of my personally favorite things that we do all year long on the podcast with all our specials and segments and even the NFL and stuff like that. Like, I really love the month of February because of this specific thing that we do. I agree. Yeah, it's a great call. And kudos to you, Hate Up, for coming up with it. We throw ideas at each other, and that was your uh, your ch- child, basically. And, uh, yeah, it's a great idea, and it will be interesting to see where we're at in 2024 season four of the what's world podcast and what we decide to choose and spend a month on. And, and and like you said, I thought about this because that's definitely my philosophy with most things we talk about on the podcast. I want to be as, as prepared as possible, but this kind of correlates with, I've seen a lot of interviews recently with people from the cast of the last of us, the HBO max hit. And with it being based on a beloved video game series, they asked like, especially the leads, 
uh, you know, Jewel and Ellie are the characters. And the actors, uh, both of them said that they didn't play the game or want to play the game to be influenced. And, and that's kind of how, like you said, kind of we are as, as opposed to like listening to possibly other things out there and things like that, just to give our own just unadulterated, you know, untampered with take on these things to help us personally deep dive into these things. And, and I agree with that philosophy because I think that's how it would be too. If, if I'm going to be an iconic character, I'm just going to want to do my own take on it. I'm not going to be one of like influenced by any other thing. You know, I want to kind of do my own take on it. So that's kind of the philosophy we have on breaking this stuff down. I feel. And it would be so much less interesting. I think too, like I couldn't get a month out of, other people's opinions you know what i mean like i would i need to develop yeah, you might even start to be able to do that subconsciously saying other people's opinions without even like stealing or meaning to you know it's just yeah, in your brain can... if you read it so it's like with stand-up comics like a lot of them don't want to see other people's acts because they don't want to get that in their head you know stuff like that yeah and i don't like contrary to popular belief i don't even listen to myself on the show very often um because I kind of know what I'm doing. Like, I'm not saying that I'm perfect, but like, I kind of know what I'm doing. And if I listen to the show, that's the kind of thing that like fucks with my confidence as far as doing the show. So I'd prefer not to listen to it unless I need to. Um, and I have a way of doing it where it doesn't annoy me as much. Yeah, that's kind of what I do because it, it actually helps me. But that's the thing. Everybody's different, especially with creative, creative endeavors and art. You know, you just got to do what works for you. Yeah, and I, and that's another thing too about the month of February. I, I feel like the, whatever we choose to do the month for is just another way for us to creatively do things here on the podcast, and it's it's different and it's neat and it's it, it feels uniquely our thing. So I, I do enjoy that, and, and I've enjoyed it all three years immensely. So, like I said, it's one of my favorite things we do here on the show. Yeah, it's definitely tough to say goodbye to the month of the samurai. Hey, yeah, but we move forward on the journey of the What's Real podcast, just like our boy Ito. Absolutely. So that reminds me as a programming note, uh, this is kind of what we're going to be doing here for the month of March because we don't have any specific thing, but it's uh, it's March Madness coming up. So it's movie March Madness, so to speak, here for us. Uh, we're bringing back all of our segments that we do. Uh, we're going to do three weeks in a row. We're going to do double features every week. So that means Thursday night prime we're going to see coming back. Uh, Fridays at midnight's coming back. And I guess we can announce it right now. Next week on the show, for the first week of March, we're doing a double dose of the movies that made us. Me and the Jay both going to have a choice there. And uh, we have something special planned, too, for the end of the month. We'll get into that as the weeks go on as well uh, for what we'll do the final week. But uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be uh, all different types of movies, too, especially from what we've been doing for the month of the Samurai. So, uh, you know, that's what we're doing moving forward. So join us next week for a double dose of the movies that made us. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. And whenever we come back, we have a boatload of wrestling for you. We're going to talk Elimination Chamber 2023, WWE biography on the NWO, and the newest WWE rivals on Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. So stay tuned. We'll be back with all that and much more right here on the What's Real Podcast. This is Ed from the What's Real Podcast. What would dad do? Suppose dad was going to create the greatest hangout spot in the world. Would he have more than 100 craft beers? Check. Hard to find sweet seasonal brews on tap? Check. Juicy burgers seasoned with goodness and grilled to perfection? Check. Signature dogs and beloved favorites on the menu? Check. Comfortable for friends and family, even your little brother? Check. Welcome to dad's. Well, 
That's what Dan, Steve, and Eric set out to do. Of course, the trio had spent some quality years working together at a certain hot dog and beer joint in Monroeville. That's when they came to the conclusion that they could shape a bar and restaurant with the beer they love, the food they love, and the people love they hang out with. So, Dad's was born. In its first year, Dad's has become a favorite hangout for many who stumbled in for the very first time. We hope to be your favorite spot, too. Check us out on the web at dadspub.com. Give us a call at area code 412-856-5666, located at 4320 Northern Pike, Monroeville, and 1050 Brayton Avenue, Pittsburgh, PA. That's Dad's. And we're back, and this is usually the part of the show where I ask the Jay what we have this week on the goof front, but we're not going to do that. So the Goofs or Goofs segment is something that's been built into the inception of the show. Uh, This is Jared's baby. Uh, We do it every week. It's a good way to wrap up the show and have a little fun before we we set off and sail for the next episode. Um, But Goofs or Goofs is absolutely us. We are a huge fan of just stupid and goofy shit. So the J, I got to ask you, what do we have this season on the goof front? All kinds of hilarity and comedy is one of the toughest things to do for an audience because it is so objective or objective. Well, I guess that works too, but subjective where, you know, your sense of humor can, you know, there's so many different forms of comedy. I mean, you could, what can make you laugh varies from person to person is my point. I mean, you could like slapstick, you know, physical humor. You can like gross out humor. You can hate that and like intelligent humor. You can like observational humor, like classic Seinfeld. There's so many different forms forms of it and again what makes you laugh what really gets you going can can vary so much and and like you said hey ed we just take matters into our, our own hands this is our baby and, and and that sort of metaphor and we just are going to bring up the stuff that makes us laugh so uh, a lot of the time it's just completely goofy stupid stuff of course we we use our sponsor the interwebs to scour you know the things of the week that, that make us laugh and and kind of the gimmick of it is is me taking these stories and throw them throwing them at you live on the air as we record uh, just to see your reaction and things like that. And I think that works a lot because we always have a blast and and you could, you could probably agree with this too. Hey Ed, I, I think a big part of what makes goofs or goofs, AKA GRG, AKA Gerg, what it is, is the fact that also week in and week out that we do on every episode, we close each episode with goofs or goofs. And it's typically after we've done, Basically, even if the episode is not three hours long, we've been prepping and talking and doing that sort of thing. Like most, I'd say average what's real weeks, usually we're, we're together three hours putting it together. I'd say is the average, which might yeah. vary a little bit, but it's basically three hours. So when we're closing out with Goose or Goose, the comedy show, we are, or comedy segment, we are completely like I am now. <laughs> Witching yeah, hour? we have no idea we're, what's we're going on. We're completely in the witching hour. We don't know what's going on. So that even adds to it where we're just talking shit saying stupid stuff um frankly if we were a bigger podcast i'm sure it would get us in trouble in the piece of culture you know but (laughs) it is what it is we're what's real and we do our thing but uh it's our tradition to close things out with goofs or goofs and that's what we're doing here as we do with every best of uh season wrap up as well so we're we're closing things with goofs or goofs uh so hopefully you could find something even if it's not funny to you maybe it's at least entertaining two old friends trying to make each other laugh and laughing with each other that's right so it is time to get into it the jay i'm a goof you're a goof we're all goofs and it is time for the best of season four goofs or goofs right here 
on the What's Real Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs or Goofs. And we're back, and it is that time once again. So the J, what do we got this week on the Goof Front? Uh, what a beautiful day. Hey, yeah, the birds are chirping, the butterflies are above the pussy willows here at our lagoon, the beluga whale's chilling. Ripley, our ant ear is huge and healthy. So happy for her. And man, are we are we fortunate individuals, hey Ed, to have the ability to walk down here to this beautiful setting. And of course, I'm talking about the waterfall over here that never stops flowing. Welcome to Goose or Goose 172. Uh, first up, this was a big news story this week, and I definitely couldn't wait to bring this up on the show because I wanted to get your take and see if you were down to try this. As Burger King Thailand introduces a burger with 20 nope. slices of American cheese nope. and no meat. It's called the real cheeseburger. Nah, I'll pass. Very, very, very hard pass. You'll pass gas if you eat that. Yeah, or you'll pass a fucking... Away. Yeah. I mean... I, I like American cheese, but not that much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of cheese, but there's a lot of ways to like completely ruin it. And especially like, can you imagine if it's, which it probably is coming from a fast food joint in Thailand, but if it's the pe- pasteurized bullshit and it's like plastic. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much what I would assume it would it, be. Like, it puts your colon in a sharpshooter. Yeah. That's exactly what I would assume it would do. I mean, that's just just awful. But I, I'm interested to see what kind of sales they get for that. You're never going to so, hear about it. Yeah. It's like one of those things. Like, it's just gone into the lexicon now. So, like, remember when they had that, the cheeseburgers? It was all cheese. Like, no. Like, yeah, I don't either. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, like, who had that? Or, like, that wasn't a fucking thing, you dumb shit. It's like, no, it was. This next one is our love for animals continues as a silverback gorilla sees a little girl banging her chest at a zoo. So he charges her and cracks the glass because they're like in a, you know, encampment. But I can't wait to see this. Dude, do not fuck around with silverbacks. No, I mean, you're lucky the glass fucking yeah, held up. Yeah, did you up. see that? Holy shit. And they all fucking take off. <laughs> yeah. Except for the two people with strollers that are just sitting there. It's like, yeah, maybe you should idiots. leave. Yeah, it's like, an 800-pound like gorilla. Okay. Like, yeah, I can't wait to see your kid get ragdolled by this silverback. Yeah, it's freaking crazy. Next up, this had me dying. Hogan, Hulk Hogan's doing a ventriloquist. Ventrilo- try to say this one. Hey, yo. Hogan's doing a ventriloquism act now. With an orange Kermit the Frog who says, brother, whatever ta- entertains the fans on karaoke night, I suppose. Are you seeing well, this? It's weird. It's, dude, I, I'll tell you one thing I don't understand. I, him doing ventriloquism is weird, but it's not surprising because, I mean, he's been talking out of his ass for the better part of 40 years. Good point. Yes, it's very ironic. Gee, don't you think? Yes. Uh, th- this was <laughs> This was a good one. A team of handlers is attempting to capture a five-year-old sea otter that has apparent repeatedly stolen surfboards from riders in Santa Cruz. <laughs> so, <laughs> the uh, local police are trying to figure out how to handcuff it. But meanwhile, it just has flippers. The, the otter said, fuck you, brah. Yeah, fuck you, brah. I'm taking this board. It's mine now. And this, then this, make this, seal noises. 
This was a good one. I, I sent it to you for reference. A famous Kansas City Chiefs fan is now under arrest after being accused of funding his football fixation with several bank robberies across five states, stealing close to 844000 He's like a chief werewolf. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I wonder if he did it in the fucking outfit. Yeah, he probably did. Like he comes in humming the NFL on Fox themes. So yeah, he uh he could be seeing some significant jail time with that that kind of uh cachet with the eight hundred and forty four thousand and five different state jurisdictions to deal with, several bank robberies. So he might have seen his last live Chiefs <laughs> game. All all he needs to do is put on a new outfit and a Titans uniform and they'll never find him. Yeah, exactly. And he dressed dressed like a fucking a giraffe in a Titans outfit. And they'll never know who it is. Like uh, he disappeared on us. Like fuck. This this one was an oldie but goodie viral video at Crazy Clips Only. Uh, I was a thief that was stealing clothes from Forever Twenty One, and he ends up dangling from an overpass that's probably about fifty feet in the air, and just drops. I cannot. I've seen this before, and I cannot wait to see yeah, it. Yeah, just go to more. five seconds. Left in the video. The dude somehow survives, but I don't think he's walking well to this day. It's funny too, because it's like you hear him land, it's like, yeah. he's like I'm all right. Yeah. <laughs> like I mean, dude, well, and the plus side of things too. If you you see all the clothes and stuff that he's carrying. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably like a grand total of seven dollars. Yeah. Because the store's cheap as fuck. Forever twenty one. <laughs> Yeah, this, this was guess. a good one. Speaking of uh, just idiot uh, criminal type characters, a rapper, <laughs> yeah, a rapper released a song called "Wire Fraud Tutorial," in which he literally gives a wire fraud tutorial. Well, I mean, there's dead body disposal by Necro literally tells you how to kill somebody and get away with it. But I guess we've done that enough in hip hop through the years, right? Yeah, might as well keep it going. I forwarded this one to you. I'm going to play oh, it in the I've background. Oh, I've seen this. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger's Japanese energy drink commercial from 89. Uh, so if you guys are interested, Jesus. at History and Memes. But it's a- with Schwarzenegger promoting a Japanese energy drink in 89. <laughs> He's like, ah, I'm Ah, go beer. unbelievable now this is probably the worst thing that we're ever going to talk about so great bear with me here hey you know i apologize (sighs) to you beforehand to be sending this to you for reference but you need it because you probably wouldn't even believe me i think i'm making it up notorious idiots or goofs that are constantly on goofs or goofs the island boys they oh. deny sexual chemistry with each other after making out. Twin brothers. Is that not the worst thing you've ever seen? <laughs> but but at least there's no <laughs> sexual feelings between the bros. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wanted to just ruin your night, hey, Ed. Night ruined. <laughs> um, this was a good one. In 1985, the police sent free Super Bowl tickets to wanted criminals just to arrest them when they arrived at the stadium. <laughs> yeah, dude, there, I've, dude, I've seen this on, I swear to God, this they showed this on like the 30 for 30. And oh, I know what it was. They actually reenact this 
with Yankee tickets in the old Pacino movie Sea of Love. If you remember, uh, I remember Sea of Love. Yeah, with Ellen Barkin. Yeah, She's it's like all the dudes get arrested at the beginning because he's like, "Oh, you got free Yankee tickets." That's and the dude show That's a good move. Yeah, idiot yeah. criminals. They'll come. That's a good bait and switch, man. Uh, this I is suppose. one of our uh, favorite parts of Goose or Goose here on the show. Hey, Ed, I just sent it to you, bro. What the fuck is that creature? So take a look uh, live on the show. Let's get what you what think. What the hey, fuck? Ed. Yeah, it kind of looks like it, a fish with a human face. It looks like a fish that has the face of like a ba- the baby gangster from the old Looney Tunes commercials <laughs> yeah. or uh, Looney Tunes cartoons. At Borna Kang posted this so if you folks listening are interested uh you could tell us what you think at what's real pod at gmail.com which i'm sure yeah that's yeah definitely we're gonna get bombarded yeah so this uh might either ruin your night or make your night for the island mode the the first fucking comment so he's like about that fish they're like that's CeeLo green (laughs) it does look like (laughs) CeeLo like his his career is in the dumps He's in a, in a pond. Dude, I'm fucking dying. All right, I sent this to you. Who is the right person? Laughing my ass off. So for those listening, it's a dove with a strap-on dildo on. It's just considering this a fucking warning. Oops, wrong person. And then in and all the caps. person responds, <laughs> yeah. who, who is the right person? <laughs> yeah, so that's your uh, pigeon with a dildo uh, for the day. Yeah, that's a first. Uh, this was hilarious. Uh, recently, our close personal friend of the show, Wiz Khalifa, from Alderdice in Pittsburgh, he threw out the first pitch at the Pirates game yesterday while if high that's on what mushrooms. If you want to call it. Yeah, it's just like Doc Ellis yep. doing the no-hitter. Yeah, he's doing Oh, wait, that was, was, that gonna, was acid. I was going to say, he's doing a doc, some sort of a Doc uh, Ellis homage. Got to love it. So this is our story of the week to close things out for GRG 172. And it's about Roland the Farter, also known as Roland La Fartier and Roland La Petit. <laughs> Roland the Fartier. <laughs> he was a medieval entertainer who achieved an unusual degree of fame during his time. He lived during the reign of King Henry II of England and is remembered for his unique and somewhat bizarre talent. He was a minstrel and jester by profession employed by the court of King Henry II, and he was renowned for his exceptional ability to produce impressive and resonant flatulence, which he cleverly <laughs> incorporated into his performances to entertain the nobles. <laughs> Dude, why can't I just see a bunch of blue butt blood sitting around where the suit's like... <laughs> <laughs> and they're all like, oh, very good. Yeah, so very flatulent young fellow he is. Yeah. <laughs> His Fucking art, the world sucks. His <laughs> artful control over his bodily function allowed him to produce different sounds, tones, and rhythms, turning his flatulence into a form of musical expression. And according to historical records, Roland's act involved a ritualized performance known as the leaps, split, and turn. During this performance, he would execute a graceful leap into the air while simultaneously executing a, a controlled split. And finally, he would spin around in a swift motion. At the climax of this acrobatic display, Roland will let out a sonorous and well-timed fart, elicits laughter and amusement from the audience. So, so basically, this dude was like a medieval Mr. Methane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as we said, you guys can't steal the movie and, idea. And, We're making it. And, Roland the fart. And, and ass, we said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and ass, I always say to my brother from another mother, 
what else can we say? Rolling the farter and all these goofs. Goofs are goofs. Because <laughs> you got to get the well-timed fart in there. Yes. But uh, but yeah, guys, that's about it for us this week here on the show. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed everything that you heard. If not, tough shit. Uh, show's over. So we, no, no refunds. Uh, if you guys are listening on iTunes, feel free to give us a five-star review. Helps out the algorithm, gets more eyes and ears on the program. And you can listen to us on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, such as Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and each and every week at churchillpictures.com. Uh, if you have anything you'd like to add to the show, you probably won't. You can do so at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Again, for no reason, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Uh, also, shout out to our producer, Cam, and another congratulations on him being a business man, handling his business, because as we know here on the program, nobody beats some motherfucking whiz. The J, clang, clang. Clang, clang. The podcast tag team champions of the universe prevail once again. Uh, and that's about it for us this week. This is it from the What's Real podcast for Height Apparel, your one-stop shop for fashion retail. For one-of-a-kind shopping experience, stop by Height Apparel. Founded by Eric Walker, our business brand is based around people who are of average height, 5'10 and under. We will have the season's greatest fashion picks. Whether you're on the lookout for men's clothing or accessories, stop by and browse our latest collection. That's Height Apparel, H-Y-G-H-T, apparel.com. Again, that's HeightApparel.com. And we're back. And that was Goofs or Goofs, guys. So if you're... Uh, my face hurts if, this time. Hey, Adam. Slimy. Yeah. My face hurts. Even the clip yeah, shows it, are tough. Killing me here. Yeah. And we hope you guys enjoyed that. We hope you guys enjoy the show. Obviously, we'd like to thank all of you for listening to us week after week here on the podcast uh, and joining us for, you know, stepping into our world and, and kind of listening to us babble on about the things that we like and some things that we don't. Um, we try and just do stuff that we think is fun and things that we think are interesting. And if anybody else agrees with us and listens to the show, that's, that's more than enough for us. So it's been a blast again here for season four and, uh, looking forward to season five, man. What else can you say? I love it. Hey, Ed, I can't stress it enough. I love escaping into our world. It is Steve McQueen in it as coined by the J on the What's Real podcast, but I love it. And there's, you know, no mystery onto why we were able to collaborate with the wizard behind the boards, our producer cam and each other consistently every week for now going on five years because it is fun. We wouldn't do it otherwise. It's hard work. There's a lot we put into the show, but at the end of the day, we love doing it and and it's a blast. So, you know, hopefully that rubs off on to have whoever this show is found. And, and I always joke, maybe it's the year 3085 and aliens are hearing us right now. This is what it was like on planet earth from 2020 to 2023 week in and week out for the J and Hey Ed, you get a little slither, slither of our lives, a little view into our world with the what's real podcast, but I love it. And your boy, the J is going to be training with knock. My wife, Katie is going to be getting me in the shape. My kids, Gianna and Jace are helping out. It's a family affair here. Your boy, the J is going to be in the best shape of my life. Creatively, physically and mentally for season five of the what's real podcast. Hey, and I am bringing the purple as you know, to season five, but I can't wait. And this year has been a blast, man. My usual shout outs and you could close this out. Hey, Ed, love the show to our producer, Cam. Thanks for what you do, Cam. That's right. It's that constant, consistent weekly 16 K sound to Hey, Ed, another great year. Season four in the books. Let's ride off into the future in season five, baby. 
you'll hear the J next week. Absolutely. So all cliches aside, thanks to our producer, Cam, for all the hard work he puts in the show. We really appreciate you, man. Uh, Best of luck with everything you're working on, uh, as we've talked about on the show before. We really appreciate you here. Uh, And the J, my brother, I appreciate you as well, man. Thanks for sitting down with me every week and doing the show. Uh, We all know that we're still the tag team podcasting champions of the universe, but uh, it goes way beyond that, brother. So uh, I hope everybody out there has a wonderful holiday season. Uh, and had a wonderful Christmas and, and all that fun stuff. But uh, that's it for us this season of the What's Real Podcast, season four. Closing down, we will see you guys in season five. So that is it for us this week here on the show, and that is it for this season, another one of the books. See you next season for season five in 2024. Happy New Year, everybody. That is it from us here on the What's Real Podcast. What's real? What's real?